Okay, why don't we get started? Good morning, thank you for coming today. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today to CSIS's Sahel Summit. Today's event was made possible for the generous contributions and support of the European Union and the embassies of Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and Spain. I suspect it may be obvious to most people why we're having this event today. The situation in the Sahel is dire and it is worsening. How bad has it become? According to the Armed Conflicts Location and Event Database, ACLID, uh, in March of this year they reported a massive spike in deadly violence across the Sahel. Compared to the same period last year, report fatalities linked to direct attacks targeting civilians from November 2018 to March 2019 jumped by 7,000% in Burkina Faso, 500% in Niger, and 300% in Mali. The region and its international partners face a very tough adversary. In fact, it's my view that JNM, which is the Al-Qaeda alliance in the Sahel, is Sub-Saharan Africa's most formidable extremist group. And let me give you five reasons why. First, it's a coalition of groups that includes AQIM, Al-Mar Batoun, Ansar al-Din, and uh, the Messina Liberation Front. Plus, it works with Ansarul Islam in Burkina Faso, and some say has coordinated with ISIS in the Greater Sahara. Two, it recruits from a multiple number of ethnic groups, so Arabs, Tuaregs, Fulani, but its aspirations are actually much broader. We know that it preaches and dis disseminates propaganda in Bambara, which is the language of many in southern Mali, and also in Moray, which is the language of the Masi people in Burkina Faso. Three, it's conducted attacks across a wide swath of this region, Mali, Niger, Burkina, but it also has attacked in Cote d'Ivoire in 2016. They attacked the uh, resort town of Grand Bassam. And then there was most recently an operation, a kidnapping operation in northern Benin. Four, JNM is capable of very high-tech attacks and very low-tech attacks. Uh, you may recall that they did a coordinated attack on the uh, French Embassy and the Army Headquarters in Ouagadougou in March of 2018, and then a month later struck the airport in Timbuktu and the UN base. Um, at the same time, the attacks can be fairly low-tech, rudimentary. Uh, there's been a recent reporting of, of the group booby-trapping corpse in Mali and Burkina uh, to exact large casualties. And finally, I believe what is most frightening about this group is its ability to tear at the fabric of Sahelian communities. As we've seen in central Mali, this group uses strategic violence to set off a wave of retaliatory killings. Uh, and then it will move in and present itself as the protector of one group against another group and the only force able to re-establish uh, order. So I've worked the Sahel for 15 years. First as a junior analyst, then as a policymaker, and then finally as a senior analyst for the US government on Sub-Saharan Africa before I joined CSIS a year ago. I was at the White House when the Tuareg Rebellion started in January 2012, uh, when we, the government of Mali fell, 
when there was a support for the African-led support mission to Mali, AFISMA, which has now uh, converted to the UN mission MINUSMA, and then when the French intervened in January of 2013. In the intervening six years, I've seen the international community and the region grow alarmed and anxious about the trends. We now have, in addition to MINUSMA, the French Operation Barkhane and the G5 Sahel Joint Force. Many international organizations and some of the countries that will be on our panel today now have Sahel envoys. We are collectively throwing more money, diplomats, and soldiers at this problem, and the situation's only becoming more desperate. So, this is why we're having this event today. I think it's imperative that we rethink the playbook when it comes to the Sahel. And there's two things that I really want us to talk about today, which the panels are structured around. First, I don't think we spend enough time thinking about and addressing the political drivers of this conflict. And we haven't confronted the fact that domestic politics in some of these Sahelian countries present real obstacles to achieving peace. And two, we need to ask hard questions about this ever-expanding international architecture around the Sahel. There must be, and we need to ask ourselves, how do we do this smarter? How do we work together more efficiently to address peace, uh, or address the challenges in the Sahel? It wasn't our intention to hold this event on 9-11, uh, but I do think we have an opportunity here, as we did 18 years ago, to take stock of where we are and to be bold about next steps if we want to safeguard the future of this region. So I'm elated to have such a large uh, group of folks interested in the Sahel uh, to listen and to share their insights. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague Alice and our first panel to get us started. Thank you so much. Welcome everyone, good morning. Um, as Jed said, my name is Alice Friend. I am a senior fellow here in the International Security Program at CSIS. Um, and I was at the Pentagon uh, in 2012 when Jed was at the White House. Um, when we started our friendship under such circumstances. And so this, um, this topic in this region is near and dear to both of us, um, as well as I think to our friendship. So um, I'm very happy to, to be here today um, helping with this conversation. We have an incredible panel here this morning. Uh, and what I'm going to do is start with a couple of rounds of questions and then open it up to you all in the audience. As Judd said, our focus up here is the political drivers of what's happening in the Sahel today because um, we don't necessarily talk about that enough in this town. Um, and so as I uh, turn to each panelist, I'm going to do very brief introductions. You have their bios in your packet. Um, and so I won't belabor that, um, but I will remind you who everybody is in their area of expertise, ask them a question, um, and as I say, when we're done with a couple of rounds of that, it'll be your turn. Um, so I'm going to start with Dr. Susanna Wing. Um, Susanna has written a fantastic book called Constructing Democracy in Africa, um, and is going to talk to us about Mali in particular. Susanna, the conversation about Mali and the Sahel um, is often about insecurity and extremism as opposed to wider contexts. Um, but your work has consistently focused on the politics at the heart of the conflict. And recently you noted that, quote, the real problem in Mali is the separation of the political class that are ruling in Mali and the rest of the country. 
The politicians in Mali are not effectively responding to this crisis unfolding across the whole country. So I'm hoping you can discuss the political roots of Mali's instability and whether some of the political dynamics remain obstacles to a peaceful resolution. And in particular, if you could give us a sense of how politics in Bamako and the South relate to politics in central and northern Mali. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, of course, so as uh, Alice mentioned, my work has been on democratization in the region. I think it's very important when we think about Mali to understand that the moment of 1991-1992 political transition towards democracy was an extremely hopeful moment for the entire country. And that where we are today, I think, does connect to some of the failures of that particular moment. And I'm going to point to a few aspects of that. Um, one is the ongoing crisis with the Tuareg um, has been just that. It's been ongoing for decades. And there have been numerous peace accords which have been written over time and not fully implemented and followed through on. And so there is a history of sort of promises made and failure to implement those, um, follow through on those, on those promises. And to be specific, um, I would point towards greater autonomy for those living in northern Mali, um, and maybe even more particularly the decentralization process, because decentralization that was launched in mid, um, in the mid-1990s was supposed to bring governance to the people. It was really supposed to be an opportunity for development and governance to happen um, from the ground up. And this more inclusive governance was also something that nor those in the north, the Tuareg, really wanted to see as well. Um, it didn't really work that way, and I would point to two ways that it failed in particular. One is that it was never actually really decentralization. It was never bringing more inclusive governance across the country. Um, and it also, there, were, there wasn't enough um, money transfer to make it work, um, but also it became, unfortunately, opportunities for, for uh, people to, for rent-seeking, for more opportunities for people to put their hand in um, the, the honeypot, as it were. And it, it, I would say, became, quite honestly, an immense failure. And um, so, so that's the first, is that you have this aspiration of local governance coming to the people. Um, the second point that I would really like to emphasize is this notion of the political class that you mentioned. And that is that people really do speak about it in those terms in Mali. You have a class of people who are running the show, who are the politicians. And there's a huge disconnect between those people operating in Bamako and the rest of the country. And so until this sort of a, a bridge can be made um, between the political class for actually doing things for people on the ground in Mali. And for the sake of time, I would like to just point to some of the things that, uh, you know, people really want to see is they want local they want local governance they want good roads they want development they want jobs they want 
Um, they don't want to see their leaders flying off to Europe and negotiating, or they don't want to see all the money pouring in for security solutions for which there is no increased security in the country. There's actually not much connection between all of this money flowing in and what people on the ground across the country are seeing, and that is, is um, I think, a fundamental disconnect that's taking place in the country. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Dr. Wing. Um, next, I'm going to turn to Andrew Lebovich. Lebovich, okay. There are many ways to pronounce your name, Andrew. Um, Andrew is a doctoral candidate at Columbia University, and he's also a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, where he's doing a fantastic mapping project um, of the Sahel and violent groups there that I encourage you all to check out. And I tweeted it last night if you want a quick link to it. Um, Andrew, you've made similar arguments to Susanna's in your work. Um, you noted in 2018 that, quote, Bamako's elites are more connected to the realities of cities outside Mali than to what is happening in the center or north of the country. But you've also talked about how the war economy, and this is one we want to draw you out on, um, including drug trafficking, undercuts negotiations between the government and the rebels. So can you walk us through the relationship between illicit economies and politics in Mali today? Sure. Well, thank you very much. And of course, thank you to, to Judd and Kat for putting this fantastic event together. Um, the, the issue of illicit economies uh, is an interesting one in part because we can, we can unpack that a bit because it's not just a question of illicit economies. It's also one of, of semi-illicit economies that has long fueled um, sort of local governance but also sometimes local rebellion and issues in, in Mali and throughout the region. Um, but there's also within the idea of the war economy, it's not just drug trafficking, of course, which continues to play an important role, but sometimes is exaggerated in its impact on armed violence, but also just uh, access to contracts, access to UN contracts, for instance. Um, and then separate from that, uh, but related, there's also the war economy that is related to peacekeeping and peacekeeping operations sort of everywhere. Uh, but in Mali in particular, where we have a, a massive UN mission that has a number of things associated with it. Uh, and if we are just looking at the peace process, for instance, and the, the current push toward uh, an accelerated DDR program, uh, so the disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration, uh, that also is its own economy that has an interest for the armed groups in participating, but not always in actually completing the process. Um, because participating in the process and participating in the peace process more broadly uh, carries with it a number of things. Uh, economic support in some cases to the armed groups themselves, certainly per diems that are paid to the leaders. And the point that, um, that my dissertation advisor and I were making in the piece that you mentioned last year was actually that uh, in certain areas of, of Bamako, we can see just over the last couple of years, even since the peace process started, massive houses that go up. And if you ask people in those areas what those houses are, sometimes they say, oh, those are drug traffickers. Sometimes it's just the armed group leaders who went from, of course. Uh, sometimes it's armed group leaders um, who are involved in trafficking, but sometimes it's also armed group leaders who went from staying in nice hotels in Bamako to actually building their own houses. And so there's another aspect of this, which is that um, as the armed group leaders in some cases have become better integrated into Bamako, into Bamako politics, and have become fixtures there, there's another gap also with their fighters and with some of the political aspirations of these armed groups. Um, and so then there's also, again, this similar process of 
uh, an interest in prolonging the peace process, in prolonging uh, this entire, these negotiations in prolonging the disarmament program, but not everyone has an interest in actually wrapping it up because wrapping it up would mean, on the one hand, uh, separating themselves from some of these, uh, these resources, but on the other, it would also mean dealing with some very complicated and very difficult political questions. Um, some of the questions, particularly that Susanna was talking about before, questions about decentralization, but also questions about the military and defense forces, and also questions of really how local governance is organized. And to circle back to the start of the question, I think to wrap up, um, one of the issues with understanding illicit or semi-illicit economies in Mali uh, has also long been that even drug traffickers, cigarette traffickers and others have a local implantation that is very important. And this money gets filtered back into local communities. Uh, whether we're talking about drug trafficking money or we're talking about money from the peace process. So this also, in some cases, even as the process goes on, makes long-term governance more difficult because cutting off those resources, cutting off these processes also sometimes means that these communities will either uh, not have the same representation they might have or they're forced to more closely align themselves with armed groups in some circumstances because of the feeling that only those armed groups uh, can protect their interest in the absence of a state that many people see as not representing them or not wanting to defend their interests. Oh, that's fascinating. We talk a lot in the security sense about instability, but you're saying that there's an equilibrium to war economies. That's really interesting. I hope we follow through on that. Um, but next I'm going to turn to Corinne Dufka. Corinne is the West Africa Director for Human Rights Watch. Um, she's also had a career as a criminal investigator, and before all that she was a photojournalist and went pretty much everywhere there was conflict in the world, I think, um, since the late <coughs> um, it, It's a really pretty thrilling biography to read. I was studying up on you last night. Um, Corinne, I'm going to ask you to help us think through Mali's role in the broader Sahel. Um, you probably have the broadest perspective of any of us on the panel here. Um, and so I want us to think about how we can understand the whole region by understanding Mali. So from an outsider perspective, politics in Mali are a focal point for the region, but are they different than dynamics in Burkina Faso, which you've written about recently, um, Niger, and other countries in the Sahel? Do you see similar relationships between elites and the security crises in those countries? And are there patterns to whether and how governments and insurgents perpetrate human rights abuses? Just small, small set yes, of questions. Yes, small, right. Yeah, that's a complex question. So um, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. This is an incredibly important event. 2019 has been an absolutely devastating year from a human rights and atrocity perspective as security force members and peacekeepers have been ambushed and executed, um, as scores of suspects have been disappeared and tortured and killed in security force operations, and especially for civilians, hundreds of whom have been massacred by um, militia groups and by jihadists. Uh, and I'm starting with the human rights angle because while, of course, uh, discussing the issues of, around political elites is important. The human rights abuses, we cannot lose sight of them because um, the, we can't lose sight of the role that atrocities play in fomenting conflict, in undermining solutions, and very importantly, in filling the ranks of abusive non-state actor groups, jihadists and militias. Um, we've seen very worrying trends this year, uh, and we have to wonder where the jihadists are getting this um, uh, the capacity building, as it were, for these increasingly complex attacks and lethal attacks, particularly with respect to IED 
entities which are increasingly targeting civilians, um, uh, as well as um, um, increasing massacres by uh, jihadists who previously pretty much targeted um, state agents. Um, with respect, and also the militias are becoming increasingly, increasingly more organized, um, funded, um, and obviously lethal. With respect to the similarities, it is absolutely true that there are a number of drivers which conspired in to, to um, lead to Mali's near collapse in 2012, which exist in uh, to a, uh, varying degrees um, in different countries in the Sahel as well as elsewhere, um, and they are, you know, very recently very challenging geography. Um, we've got rapid. A population growth, which is a bit of a taboo. Nobody likes to speak about it, but until the region addresses this, uh, and the international community addresses this problem, none of these solutions are going to stick. Competition over land, water, and grazing space, global warming, all of which make development extremely difficult. Uh, we've got arms proliferation, weak rule of law, corruption, um, and unresponsive government. Uh, and then let's, let's not forget, as Judd um, uh, discussed, we've got a very, very clever enemy in the jihadist groups. Um, which um, are outpacing, their localization strategy is outpacing local responses, um, and um, they are exploding, uh, exploiting all of the above, the elite issue, but also they're exploiting cleavages along generational lines, along clan and tribal lines to garner, um, and garner recruits. Um, now, um, I spend more of my time looking at how the states are responding and how those responses to the, the, the terrorism threat are complicating the situation. Very briefly, um, I think Niger is interesting. Niger is a very interesting because, of course, it borders Libya, which is seen to be you know, the driver in all of this, um, the ground zero in this. But of course, it didn't implode the way that Mali did, and we have to ask why. I think they had a more responsible um, uh, um, strategy with respect to disarming the Tuaregs when they came across, and others coming across from Libya. Uh, they have also better integrated um, the separatist, uh, the, 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 the Tuaregs into, and meaningfully into their society. Mali, you know, their response has been interesting um, with respect to two, I think, problematic um, dynamics. One of them is what we would call the subcontracting of security responsibilities to abusive militias. This is deeply problematic and it's had very lethal consequences. The other, I think, is an overemphasis on social cohesion, and you know, that may sound strange, but it's short term. The, 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 the emphasis on social cohesion in the absence of justice and more structural change is deeply problematic. With respect to Burkina Faso, I'm extremely concerned about a very aggressive counterterrorism strategy, which has led to very serious abuses. And I think one thing that all of them have in common is a lack of emphasis on justice and um, insufficient attention on the issue, on addressing the drivers and the issues which gave root, um, you know, which underscore um, um, the insecurity in, in the region. Thank you. Um, and next up we have Desuba Konate. Desuba um, is from Mali, and so she is, A, going to be able to talk to us about the perspective from uh, Malian citizens, but also does incredible work with the accountability lab in Mali. Desuba's had a career taking her all over, but she decided to move home recently, as I understand it, um, and work with accountability labs. So we're thrilled to have her. And Desuba, uh, we want you to talk to us about, about your support for fellow Malian citizens uh, in their efforts to engage their government. Um, if you could talk to us about what the opportunities are to press for more inclusive politics um, and earnest efforts to address the underlying drivers of insecurity in Mali and the Sahel. And I also want to give you the opportunity to respond to anything you've heard so far from your fellow panelists as well. Okay, perfect. <clears throat> 
Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the audience for being here. Um, so despite the fact that Mali is actually going through a multidimensional crisis, like both um, sociopolitics, economic, um, security, and territorial, um, I think that there are definitely opportunities to press for more inclusive politics, and one of them is the youth. So according to the World Economic Forum, 19 of the 20th world um, youngest countries are in Africa, and the top three are in Sahel. And the top three are Chad, Mali, and Niger, with a median age of 15 to 16 years old. So not only that, but we have also with every woman having between six to seven children, those country population are set to triple by 2050. So this is really important. And what I'm doing um, in, in Bamako, uh, in, in Mali in general, through um, an organization called Accountability Lab is that our goal is really to build a new generation of active citizen and responsible leaders. And we do, and we do that through um, a national campaign, a program that is called um, Integrity Icon, where we are really identifying and celebrating civil servants that are doing an amazing job, who are doing the right thing, who are um, demarcating themselves by their integrity in serving the Malian population on a day-to-day -day, um, basis. So, um, and we do that through um, a large network of volunteer, mainly youth, um, on the entire territory, on the entire Malian territory. So it's really about bringing positive narrative, bringing positive deviance, um, and supporting people who are doing the right thing, supporting civil servants who are advocating for good governance, because there are plenty of people that are doing that, and we really need to, to show them to the world. We need, we need to show them to the world, we need to also show them to the youth that we have in Mali and in the Sahel region particular, because this program is not only in Mali, but also in Niger. And why we want to show them to the youth? Simply because most of the time, this large part of the, of the population is left out of the conversation. And we, we need to give them good example and um, showing them that there are other paths to, to follow. And like we talked a little bit before, Mali is, um, Mali is definitely in a crisis, and Mali has a tremendous amount of land to govern, and with you know, like such a, a small amount of people that can do the job, and also, um, uh, and also not a lot of national infrastructure. So this is leading us basically to all type of trafficking, not only in Mali, but in the Sahel region. And I'm talking about human trafficking, I'm talking about weapon trafficking, and I'm talking also about drug trafficking. And we really need to show them that there are other paths to, uh, to, to follow. And um, again, um, just to, to conclude, because I don't want to be too long, but um, I think that when we are facing bad governance and corruption in the public system, the population and the youth need to understand what is happening in our country. They need, because um, they, they need to understand that when this is happening, so we have less school, we have less road, we have less cleaning, clinics, sorry. And this is definitely having a bad impact on the Malian population. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Andrew, I'm gonna turn back to you for a second. Um, 
Corinne touched on this, but a lot of academics have pointed, and policymakers for that matter, pointed to Niger's experience as instructive for Mali in part because it's so different from what Mali has gone through. Are there lessons we can draw from Niger's response to its past Tuareg rebellions? And what other recommendations would you share to reverse current trends? Well, certainly there are lessons to be drawn. As you said, uh, Niger and Mali have dealt with ongoing governance and security issues very differently in some ways, particularly since the 1990s. Um, some of this is related to uh, different social atmospheres, different geographies, different histories of governance in Niger uh, than in Mali. Um, one of the things uh, though that's interesting is you, you noted that it's uh, the way that Niger has dealt with Tuareg rebellions in the past. Um, in this aspect, the Nigerian government has shown uh, quite a bit of forward thinking, uh, particularly in not only integrating northern elites, um, but trying to to show that there is a stake within the system, in a sense, um, that there is a that there is a place for them within the country. And this is something that's changed, um, even really over the last five six years. That's been very notice, uh, noticeable in Niger. Uh, where things, and there's another difference also that um, Tuareg elites in particular in Niger uh, have been able to exercise a certain amount of social control uh, that in Mali is a bit more difficult uh, because of a more fragmented uh, traditional leadership, uh, because of just a proliferation of, of armed groups and, and leaders, because of challenges to traditional authority. There are a lot of things that we can maybe talk about more in the, in the Q&A. Um, but so there is also an aspect of local leadership that is very different than in Mali uh, that has helped complement government efforts. Uh, and this, this is to be lauded. This is a very important thing. Now, where that has not been the case is along other parts of the border with Mali, uh, particularly in Tilaberian and Tawa, uh, where the Nigerian government has taken a very activist role in trying to intervene in Mali and sometimes encouraging or cultivating its own relationships with Malian armed groups that has, uh, in some cases, been disastrous for civilian protection and for stability and has really led to a kind of cyclical violence along the border that is not the fault of the Nigerian government per se, but where Nigerian actions um, and counterterrorism actions and the relationships with these militias has, in my opinion, absolutely encouraged a negative security response. Um, and where there has been a, an aspect of choosing sides within communal violence uh, or within, uh, within communal protection that actually makes me think somewhat of the way Malian governments in the past have dealt with these issues, um, sort of contracting security out, as Corinne mentioned, and choosing sides and delegating security responsibility to specific local actors instead of assuming that responsibility themselves. Um, and so this has, in some cases, as I said, led to significantly more conflict. And at least on the border area and then across the Malian border in Menica, there have been different ideas over the years for how to deal with this. It's not that the government is unaware of this. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago having a conversation with, uh, with a senior member of the High Authority for the Consolidation of Peace in Niger, which of course is another innovative organization um, in terms of thinking through and implementing uh, local reconciliation and local peaceful movements, but where we had, we had this very in-depth discussion about some of the social dynamics and political dynamics along the border, the ways in which uh, Fulani populations interacted with Tuareg and other groups there. And there were a series of ideas that they had for how to deal with conflicts with herders, how to deal with some of these communal conflicts that in some cases go back decades and certainly can trace their, their direct uh, heritage now to the 1990s. Um, but none of it got implemented. 
So the, the problem is not always that people don't know what to do. Uh, the Malian government is well aware of the problems. The Nigerian government is well aware of the problems. But it's a question of choosing approaches uh, that have, in some cases, as I said, not been at all conducive to a kind of long-term peace. So what we, what we come back to at the end are oftentimes privileging short-term solutions, short-term security solutions, in a very complicated, very crowded security environment where, um, as, as Susanna mentioned before, there's a proliferation of international actors, uh, both in terms of trying to support uh, different activities in the governments of the region, but also uh, arm act, armed actors, not just militias and non-state actors, um, but the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali, uh, the French counterterrorism force, Operation Barkhane, um, that, and so you have all of these different, this constellation of security actors um, where people are regularly choosing short-term solutions in the hope of establishing a kind of baseline security and stability where it is very counterproductive oftentimes and actually not only undercuts short-term security, but any possibility for medium-term or long-term stability. And this is an ongoing concern uh, in Niger and in Mali. So there are some aspects where the Nigerian government has been very innovative and where there are lessons that can be learned in Mali. Um, and there are other ways in which the government has, in some cases, helped undercut its own security, particularly along the border with Mali, and increasingly uh, with Burkina Faso as well. Um, Susanna, this is a great segue to what I wanted to ask you because you work on this balance between decentralization but also inclusion and, and more proactive inclusion efforts on the part of the central government. So I want to talk to you about um, how do we get there from here? Um, Andrew just talked about sort of the importance of sequencing. How do we think about sequencing security development, political reform? Are they all supposed to happen at once or are there, there are patterns we need to pursue? How do stakeholders and foreign governments in particular, many of us in this room, how do we play a constructive role? Okay, thank you. Um, I think that's the million dollar question, how do we get there from here, of course. Um, I prefer to use the language of balance when thinking about security development and political reform as opposed to sequencing, and I would even emphasize a coordinated balance. We've got a lot of actors at play um, in Mali, and there needs to be some coordination, um, explicit coordination, in order to, to get to uh, the end goal of peace. I would also like to emphasize the fact that I think the political aspect has really been missing. Um, and you have things that are integral to moving towards peace that have been on the table, um, for instance, uh, constitutional reform has been discussed, and how does constitutional reform relate to um, shifting of institutions in order to um, ch change the, the current situation? Constitutional reform is a political minefield. That constitution is really held dear among many people in the country, and so that should be, people should head into that with eyes wide open, um, that there's a fear of further consolidation of power among those who are already in power through constitutional reform. That's the first point. Um, the second um, is about, I, 
what Dusuba said about the civil society actors, her organization, I really want to underscore the role of the youth and the role of connecting with organizations such as hers that are really, they know there are um, civil servants with integrity out there. There are people out there really working hard to do a good job. How do we find them? How do we work with them? Um, the, the, with respect to what's the populations on the ground, if you've been following the news in Mali most recently, there are youth protesting in the streets because they are tired of there not being any roads to get to their towns or cities, right? This is, um, people are really frustrated and angry. A new road to um, Gundam, a functioning road to Gundam, means security for these youth because it means economic security. It means, it means uh, you know, more jobs, possibility for development through this kind of infrastructure. So I would pay attention to what these youth are in the streets asking for um, and to emphasize the point that um, Andrew made about when you see these brand new houses coming up in Bamako I've been working for over 25 years in the area and there's a lot of new construction right and people see that and they see that as funneling of money from the outside to these folks and that's a problem for creating legitimate government and for um, having people believe that their government will do something for for them, right? They want the go. They want they want the roads. They want the health clinics. They want these other things that they feel the state should be providing for them. The public goods that are um, part of legitimate um, legitimate government. So, I would just emphasize, um, obviously. Those people who are working in government, as we know, and foreign actors, they are targets right now. It's an incredibly insecure and dangerous environment. So you do need to address the security question, but also pay attention to the demands on the ground across the country from um, the youth and others, and, and look to what Malian organizations are trying to do. Thank you. Um, Curran, similar nuts and bolts question. Um, what do we do? <laughs> Um, how do we persuade government officials who may not see a political imperative and they might even see a cost, um, which Susanna just referred to, to invest resources in disaffected communities um, at a max and at a minimum refrain from counterproductive tactics like supporting militias and engaging in extrajudicial killings? Great. Okay, well, Human Rights Watch loves recommendations and not just because um, I'm a rights person. I. I really firmly believe that the Sahel's problems are quintessentially human rights and bad governance problems. And tackling them should be at the front of all of our agenda for principled reasons, of course, because every life has a value, because these countries um, have signed on to international agreements, but for practical reasons as well, because the abuses, the atrocities, um, especially of suspects um, by security forces um, and the proliferation of these murderous militias are really directly translating into more recruits for jihadists and abusive groups. Um, and I can't emphasize that enough. When I talk about um, recommendations, I like to frame them within the context of a scorecard as though we're playing a football game and looking at who is scoring more goals in terms of governance, um, uh, the states 
or the non-state actor groups, jihadists and militias. And I think there, um, I look uh, specifically at five aspects, access to justice, and justice is important for all of us. Um, and, and people are keeping score, believe me, every time there's someone who is murdered, um, um, addressing corruption, ensuring community security, particularly banditry, from banditry, ensuring social cohesion, and very importantly, who is winning the morality war? And there, um, you know, I think the most interesting lab, they say Mali, Mali is a lab for uh, the rest of the region. I think the most in interesting lab, laboratory, is the zone inunde. That would be the zone above the Niger River, because it's where the jihadists, they don't necessarily exercise control, but they exercise a tremendous amount of influence. And it's very interesting to see what is happening there um, along these accesses, particularly with respect to access to justice. You know, these, um, uh, the, the jihadists have established qadis or their representatives in each of the communities. And as Judd mentioned, not just the Fulani or Pul within the Bozo, within the Bambra, within the other communities. And they are address, they're really scoring goals. They are addressing, um, they're adjudicating cases which have languished in the Malian courts for 5, 10, 15 years. They're, um, they're rendering judgments. And again, it's very imperfect, especially, you know, doesn't abide by international law. Um, but, uh, you know, they're rendering judgments on behalf of women who've been abused, who've been uh, neglected uh, and abandoned. Uh, they're addressing problems, you know, of the theft of a camel or of a motorcycle um, versus the state where I hear again and again from people on the ground, justice is up for sale. Justice is, uh, is, is corrupted. With respect to security, again, uh, you know, security, particularly from banditry, which is, which is, which is undermined livelihoods and lives um, all over the country and the region. And, and the jihadists, again, you know, are addressing that problem. I hear again and again, I heard in Gao and Timbuktu and now in Central Mali, um, you know, people are not happy when, when suspects are executed after two warnings or their hands are amputated. But they say, you know, we, that band of, of, um, of criminals was operating in our area for one to two years, and why couldn't the, you know, the gendarmerie and the police deal with them? The jihadists come in and they deal with them within two weeks. What's wrong? Um, with respect to corruption as well, you know, you've got a, a jihadists often asking for receipts when they buy, you know, lar make large purposes. So, so their, their, their discourse, and, and I talk to a lot of people who are in these meetings where the jihadists come in, call people together and talk. Um, you know, they have a moralizing discourse, they have an anti-corruption discourse, um, and they are, they are um, uh, you know, providing access to, to key government um, services, as you will, and they are filling that vacuum um, and, in a very interesting way, and I think people should be paying attention. Very briefly, in terms of uh, the way forward, you know, we've got lots of recommendations, but I think very broadly, um, you know, we have to find a balance between the military solution um, and addressing the issues where, which are at the core of Mali's near collapse and the vulnerability of the other states, keeping those root issues um, on the agenda, raising what I always like to say is the culture of low expectation of governance. Um, also, with respect to Sahelian states, um, to adi uh, adopt rights respecting counterterrorism strategies so it doesn't, the situation doesn't get even worse, and again, um, uh, you know, people aren't being pushed into the hands of the jihadists. Um, and with respect to the international community, uh, you know, increase public diplomacy on the negative um, aspects of abusive counterterrorism strategy and again support uh, justice including military justice you know I would say you know there are lots of civil servants um, out there who are trying to do the right thing there are a lot of members of the security forces who are fighting back and trying to do the right thing in Mali the gendarmes stand out um, as being uh, you know as having
being a really important force in, in, in limiting some of those abuses, and they deserve, and the military justice systems deserve a lot more support. Thank you. Um, again, a great segue for my question for D'Souza, um, which is about international engagement. Uh, there's a risk that uh, if uncoordinated and overly focused on security, international partners could have distorting effects not only on the dynamics of the conflict, but also on regional government sources of legitimacy and power. In fact, some of the region's governments seem okay with outsourcing security responsibilities to the international community. How can the international community provide support without enabling corruption or imbalances in power? Just a very simple question. Yeah, exactly. A really simple Help us. one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, th this is uh, in Mali. We have so many multiple actors. Um, we have actors that are contributing to the crisis. You know, we have rebel criminals and so on. We have multiple actors that are trying to solve the crisis, such as the G5SAIL, the MINUSMA, the Force Barkan, or the FAMA, which is the Malian army. And um, with all of those actors on, in place, right now in Mali there is a concern where we have the Malian population that is standing up and some of them are asking the international organization or the international forces to actually leave the country. Simply because from 2012 until today, the situation is not getting better, it's actually getting worse. So there is a lot of Malian people that are asking themselves, so what are you doing here? Are you, well, I don't wanna go, I don't wanna go too deep in that, but really people are really asking what are they doing on the Malian territory. I think that with all of those actors that are here in place, um, we need to, they need to have really common goal and common action to bring back the, the peace in, in our country. To talk about the, the lack of legitimacy, credibility, and power um, from the Malian government. Um, I think that when we have those international forces that are meeting the basic need of the population, such as building wells, building schools, obviously people are gonna have, they, they will have some, some trust issue in, towards the, the, the Malian government. But I think also that there is other factors such as corruption and bad governance that are already doing the job as well in, in, in terms of lacking trust um, in the government. Um, something that is really important and, and that we're really trying to push forward is really um, like really pushing the organization to have an approach that is based on the population need. And for example, our accountability lab, we have what we call the citizen help desk where we are conducting studies in a specific area on a specific subject in a specific time really to understand what, what is the, the perception of the population and what are the element of solution that they, they have in mind. And those, those information are really important in terms of, um, term of decision making, not only for the Malian government, but also for the international actors that are, that are in Mali. And uh, I will be more than happy to share some of those reports simply because um, even ourselves were surprised to see that it's not always the insecurity that is the main concern of the population. Um, unemployment is a big one. It's probably the biggest one. People want to have opportunities. They, everybody want to stay in their country. Nobody wants to, um, you know, 
go through the Sahara or go through the ocean to go to Europe and find new opportunities. No, people want to stay where they were born, where the, the family is living, and, and, and really they want to have some real opportunities. Um, the corruption and the bad governance is also a big issue. Um, and I think that there is a lot of examples that have been mentioned by Andrew, Corinne, and Suzanne about how um, the, the government can be corrupted and how it is affecting the population over there. And I think also that we need to have a really, really, really strong legal answer to the criminal. We have so many people that are disturbing the peace and we don't know what is happening after that. In March the 23rd, we have the biggest massacre of civil population in Mali, where um, there, is, there were like women that were killed, men, children, elderly people that were killed. And the answer that we got from the government is actually the dissolution of one of the community group. That's not enough. We need to have really strong legal answer to those criminals. So, thank you. Thank you, D'Souza. Um, we are now to the point where we're going to open it up to all of you. Usually we have microphones, yes? Yes. Um, so you don't have to use your stage voices. Please do introduce yourself and your affiliation. Please do phrase your question in the form of a question. If you were to write it down, it would have a question mark at the end of it. Um, and I will call on people. I have a hand back here, gentleman back here in the back row. Okay, good morning. My name is Steven Rakowski. I'm a uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa analyst at Stratfor. My question is for Andrew, but anyone else on the panel uh, who's interested. I'm particularly interested in Mauritania. When we're having a conversation about the Sahel, often the burning house that is northern Mali or Burkina Faso is rightly discussed. But with Mauritania, I can't recall any attacks having uh, occurring in the recent years. Is this because there are very specific local realities in Mauritania? Is it because militant groups have uh, pre uh, preferred trafficking routes? What's driving the quote-unquote stability in Mauritania? And looking forward, is there anything that we should be worried about Mauritania in terms of uh, the windfalls from its energy uh, sector offshore? Uh, the elite politics moving, changing over time with the transfer of power. Just very curious on anything you have to add on Mauritania. Thank you. Okay, well, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying I'm, I'm not an expert on Mauritania, uh, but looking at least from the security side, uh, there have been a number of things. So the last uh, attack, registered attack, I think it was in 2011, if I'm remembering correctly, um, the Mauritanian government pursued a, a sort of multi-track policy of uh, aggressive security intervention on the one hand, particularly on the border, on the border areas, um, better integrating uh, border communities into security units. Uh, there are also, of course, allegations that the Mauritanian government pursued a side deal with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Um, I have no proof of that, so I won't comment on that publicly, but the allegations exist. Uh, and then, of course, as the, the Mauritanian government likes to point out, they've also pursued uh, a dialogue process with imprisoned jihadists. Um, some people see this as having been very effective. I think it's certainly uh, one of several approaches that has contributed to at least the perception that the government is willing to, um, willing to, to come to 
some sort of an understanding, willing to meet people at least part of the way and understanding their, uh, their concerns while also refuting the arguments that, that have helped underpin uh, jihadist recruitment. I also think that uh, to a certain extent, uh, Mauritania is a, is a relatively small country population-wise. Uh, there was a period of quite significant recruitment to, uh, to regional jihadist groups from about 2004, 2005 until around 2011. Uh, there's also, of course, a possibility that just uh, the people who wanted to leave have left, and then it was made much more difficult for people to, to travel afterwards, though it has certainly not stopped uh, the flow of fighters who've gone to, uh, to Mali or elsewhere. Um, in terms of stability risk because of offshore oil and gas, um, I think for now uh, the main issues are, are political and potentially the management of the resource windfall um, and the, the ongoing management of a, of a good political transition in Mauritania, which is already partially underway. Um, but I, th I think I'll stop there because I said I'm, I'm not an, an expert on Mauritania. I can just add one thing. You know, I hear often from uh, observers of um, and students of G5 Sahel, if you can say that, um, that, uh, you know, a chain is only as good as its weakest links with respect to the potential efficacy of G5 Sahel, and that there are concerns about Mauritania, particularly being a back base, an R&R place uh, for um, uh, jihadists linked to Jinim, particularly coming over from Nampala. There are real concerns there. Um, who describe, who have described to me, um, you know, seeing and being very conscious of the presence of, um, uh, you know, Jinim-linked um, people going in and out of Mauritania, and they question why it is that there hasn't been more proactivity in addressing that particular um, border issue. Um, maybe if I can add on top of um, those information, um, I think also that um, the Twig request or the Twig revendication from um, other countries uh, except Mali are really different, um, and, and that's probably why we can see that really Mali is really at the center of the, the crisis. For example, in Niger and in Mauritania, that's where we have a lot of IDPs, where we have a lot of internal displaced people, which is making also the situation really different. Okay. Kat had picked someone for me. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Dusuba, for what you're doing in Mali. We appreciate. I'm Alimata from Mali Embassy. I have a quick question for Corinne about uh, victims' access to justice. Uh, looking at the dynamic, the peace process dynamic in Mali, and all the challenges that the national justice is facing, how do you see justice for victims of gross violation of human rights since 2013 to now? So, and what uh, Human Rights Watch is doing in that purpose? Thanks, a really important question. I mean, um, uh, it is true that there is a legacy that the, that the current government inherited a, a legacy of an extremely weak judiciary. But um, I believe they could have done more uh, and that justice, uh, you know, one of the key raison d'etre of a justice system is deterrence. And when you look at um, since 2012, not just in Mali but elsewhere in the region, you have had 
thousands of people, several thousand people killed. And I can count on one hand, indeed a few fingers, the number of people who have been held to account. And people are watching and keeping score. I mean, we know from our own lives how an injustice motivates us. Um, and, and again, you know, the lack of justice is being exploited um, uh, for small cases and large is being exploited by the armed Islamist group. So I think, um, you know, when you look at the, the militias, uh, the you know, the cascade of massacres that have been committed by uh, abusive militias, militia groups in, starting in, you know, really uh, in 2016, but then exponentially, even more than exponentially, increasing in 2018. And, and, and you look at the number of people who've, held, who've been held to account. And, and you know, when we look at, um, you know, the most murderous of these groups, we could say the ones that we believe are responsible for the killing um, uh, in Ogosago and many other massacres, um, he hasn't even been questioned. He hasn't even been brought in for questioning. So I think you know the lack of justice um, is undermining in a very significant way confidence in the state. You know all that's and 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 we're not even talking about justice for petty crimes and and for economic crimes. So um, I think that the you know all that said, um, uh, I'm really encouraged by the new justice minister. He's someone that I know personally who I've who I've worked with over the years, and he has put uh, access to justice and addressing corruption within the justice system at the very top of his agenda, um, and uh, I think it's incredibly important, and you know, that he be supported in those efforts as well as uh, by the international community. And then again, that the military justice uh, system, something that the United States government has been um, trying to support, are supported as well. Thank you. Um, I'd like to oh, oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to jump in to, to respond also that, you know, Molly's done a good job of creating the institutions one might need for bringing justice, um, but they have not always functioned to their fullest, and that leaves for people to be very frustrated. And if I take just as one example, the, media, the, the mediator, perhaps, right? There are these institutions that Molly had, which when they were being created, created, um, people like me were very excited about. But I think, in retrospect, there's a lot of frustration as to what they've been able to do. And I think that goes to every layer of justice in the country. Um, yeah, I just wanted to build on what Corinne said when she was talking about um, the new Ministry of Justice. Hopefully, it's going to be the beginning of a success story, simply because he was the integrity icon of the last edition of 2018. So is someone that we, we are working with him and we are really proud of the, his new nomination. And hopefully we, we are really hoping that it's going to bring some, some, again, some strong legal answer on criminals, really. Okay. Um, I have a gentleman right here in this row. Yeah, yep, he's right here, he's sitting third back. Third, third, yeah, sorry, third from the front, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My name is Efi Tebon with Oasis Network in the Sahel. Um, I just want to find out what is the role of religion in driving the violence, and going forward, how can the role of religious leaders, community leaders like tribal chiefs and influencers, be used to be part of the solution? Um, I'm going to start, but don't, uh, you don't hesitate to build upon uh, my answer. 
Um, in Mali, um, this is really a new trend, but religious leaders have um, an impact that is absolutely tremendous. So um, in April, last April, we have um, at least three of them who, uh, first of all, they have a capacity of mobilization in the country that is absolutely amazing, really. So in April, they um, brought millions of, like thousands of people in Bamako to protest about, to protest against the government. And the result of that was the resignation of the prime minister and the entire government on, in, in last April. And um, I don't know if you, um, if you have follow up on, on this one, but last Saturday, we had one of the biggest religious leader, Imam Diko, who just launched his political movement. So we don't know what is going to happen. It's quite interesting. It's quite concerning as well. But um, w when he launches, he launches his um, political movement, it was all about, it was really talking about the catastrophic governance from the Malian government. And um, does he have element of solution? That's something that we will see in the, the future month, I think. But he said that he's not a candidate. But, you know. Um, so I'll say this is, this is a very complicated issue to deal with, in part because, uh, especially in Washington, but I've also seen this in, in other countries, there's a tendency to look at religious issues in the Sahel from a very uh, uh, sort of flat perspective. Either religious leaders can be good and constructive, or uh, religious leaders, particularly conservative Muslim leaders or, or say jihadists, are just bad, and that it's a, a sort of path toward radicalization, and neither of those are, are, are true or complete. Um, the growth of uh, Islamic actors, the increasing role of Islamic actors in public life in Mali is a, a phenomenon that is happening. It's been happening for decades. Uh, it is certainly very important. Um, but we have to look at the, the multiple reasons behind this and the multiple ways in which Islamic actors intervene in public life. Um, it's great that Shubha mentioned uh, Imam Diko, uh, who's a very interesting figure in a lot of ways. And I've, I've interviewed him a number of times, and I've talked to people close to him and others uh, in the High Islamic Council, of which he was the president before. Um, and he and other religious leaders uh, do not only exist in public life as religious leaders. And I think this is very important. So uh, Imam Diko uh, is a specific case because he'll often, if he's putting forward a political argument or a criticism of the government, he'll often say this in terms, in his identity as a Malian citizen. And he will often separate his discourses from his discourse as an imam and his discourse as a citizen of Mali who speaks to certain concerns. Um, but with, with Diko, with the current, pre of the, high, the current president of the High Islamic Council, uh, Sharif Usman Mandani Haidara, uh, they often got their start on the public scene as vocal critics of corruption and bad governance. Um, and this is something very, very important to keep in mind. Uh, and this, this is, as I said, part of the growth of, of Islam in public life, but it is also responding to these needs of citizens and even looking at, um, say, to move to, to jihadist groups in the way that they have um, manipulated but also used religious discourses. Um, the, some of the people affiliated with them, some of the imams affiliated with them, are not always imams who are directly associated with uh, what we would consider, say, radical Islamic movements uh, or, or more conservative Islamic movements. Um, and this is very important, that people gravitate in and out of these movements uh, for a number of reasons, and it's not just a strict ideological uh, dichotomy. 
Right, and so I, I'm even thinking of some of the local arrangements that have been put in place uh, between different armed groups in Mali that have involved uh, these, these qadis, these Islamic judges. Um, some of them are not at all affiliated with, say, Salafi Islam or whatever term you'd like to use, but they also played a role during the occupation of northern Mali in trying to institute um, some form of uh, justice, of justice provision, in coordination with, at times, groups like Ansar al-Din. Um, I'm thinking of, of one imam in particular who's, um, who almost got involved as an Islamic judge for Ansar al-Din before his family stepped in and stopped it, um, but who came from a very traditionalist Sufi line. And so I think the point I'd like to make is that religion is very prominent in, in public life. It plays an important role. It has to be under, but there it Dangerous. Government failure. To, to remind religious leaders like um, uh, Imam Diko, and as Dosuba was saying, religion has been in fact around the constitution, and some people will argue that um, discourse of those who think Mali has has failed too far on the secular side, and that you know this is part of the reason for poor justice and poor governance, etc., is because there hasn't been enough um, paying attention to the religious aspect, which is a deep part of Mali and life. So, so there is a tension there, and I think it's very important that people are aware of, of that tension. All right, I'm going to look at this side of the room. There's a lady right down here with a shawl on her shoulders. I know, it's freezing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hi, my name is Meredith Stock. I work at the U.S. Department of State in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. Um, so going back to the talk of illicit trafficking, um, we talked a lot about how um, it is a part of local communities and supporting the local economy, um, but we didn't talk about any about alternatives that could be used um, when those illicit economies are disrupted. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, a anything that has worked or any innovative solutions in Niger or Mali or elsewhere. Um, this is a good question in part because it's one of the challenges posed by illicit trafficking in general, particularly narcotics trafficking over the years, uh, has been the question of, of an alternative, not just something that provides a kind of economic support that illicit trafficking does, but also that provides a kind of social meaning that trafficking is often given young men in particular who see it as a way of emancipating themselves and, and really creating their own stake in their own businesses and then acquiring resources that can be reinvested into sometimes illicit businesses, sometimes into illicit businesses. Um, and this is kind of a fixture, particularly of the anthropological literature on trafficking in Mali, is that people actually often take that money and reinvest it in herds, in wells, um, and so it's, it's not just a question of finding a, a resource substitute, but actually finding a way that communities can support themselves and can continue to support themselves in a, in a sort of durable way um, that also links back to, to the political challenges and trying to find, for instance, uh, ways of managing uh, sedentary and herder uh, populations, right? Uh, so they are, they are interconnected. Um, one of the challenges to move away from drugs a bit uh, to other semi-illicit kinds, I'm thinking particularly of the migration economy. Um, one of the real challenges has actually been that the international community has made it much more difficult uh, to come up with these alternatives. Uh, and particularly, uh, and I, I say this with respect to, uh, to our European colleagues in the room, but the stance of the European Union on migration and the pressure 
to stop migration at all costs uh, coming from the Sahel toward North Africa has been devastating to local economies, particularly in northern Niger. And it's led to, um, to follow-on effects, both where migrant streams have branched out into other places in ways that have made migrants less safe and have made those economies less stable and have actually empowered um, the kinds of traffickers that also have dealt in the past in, in drugs, in weapons, and things like that, um, in ways that didn't happen necessarily even a couple of years ago or to the same extent. Um, and so the, the continued pressure on the one hand has made it harder to develop alternative economies and also uh, the programs that exist and the international programs that exist are not particularly well suited um, to local political contexts or to economic contexts. All right, now I'm looking this way. This woman has been waiting for a while. She's in the second row. An African and Orthodox Church engagement at Bread for the World. Thank you for all of your presentations. Um, mine has two parts, but I'll be quick. Um, my first part is there hasn't been much said about women's empowerment, agency, and participation. And I'd like to hear some more comments or some comments about that. And then the second part has to do uh, the level in which climate change uh, has uh, been a factor in the conversations that we're having. Thank you. So, thank you so much for uh, for your question. Um, yeah, definitely, woman empowerment is um, is definitely something that is really important. Um, for example, we are accountability lab. We have several programs where um, we are really focusing on women empowerment, but also um, women that are having disability. So, for example, people who are living with albinism or people that have physical disability or hearing impairment or those kind of things. And again, it's really coming back to, um, again, to, to our mission where we really want to have, we really want to build um, um, a, a generation of citizens that are going to, that will be able to take their place in, in the society. So women is definitely a, a priority. That's, uh, that's for sure. Um. I would just say really briefly, in terms of climate change, yes, of course it's a problem, but I'm a little concerned about, um, you know, the, the, not concerned about the focus of climate change, but the concerned about the, that, that discussion devoid of a discussion also about, um, about birth rates and about population growth. And I even hear from people um, you know, living in small villages in areas which are, of course, affected by climate change, but they talk about um, you know, one of the key drivers is being too many people, too many people competing for land um, and access to water. So I think it's, uh, you know, again, that's a taboo subject. People don't like to speak about it, but I think it's an, an incredibly important one that has everything to do with, with women's rights as well. You know, um, so I think that's, that's uh, incredibly important to look at the those two together, um, and um, uh, and one other comment I think on the issue of, of illicit trafficking. I think um, just going back, I think we should keep our eyes also on um, gold 
um, and, and diamond mining. You know, I hear, um, I've spoken with a number of people who, who formerly were engaged in, you know, illicit sort of small-scale drug trafficking, who are now um, uh, working as in artisanal gold mining and diamond mining. And those areas, uh, many of them in Burkina Faso, uh, as well as in Mali, are being taken over by armed Islamist groups, and they're using that, uh, you know, those sources from artisanal gold mining to support their operations. Um, and I'll chime in on the women's empowerment. Mali has a long history of a very vibrant sector of um, civil society, women's associations, human rights associations. And I think that, again, to underscore the, the extent to which we should be listening to Malians and how they are trying to address these problems with minimal resources, uh, that's very important. Um, and, uh, you know, the the... I mentioned earlier on about the kinds of things people would like to see on the ground and health clinics, easy access to health clinics is absolutely uh, critical and, and obviously that's something that women are directly connected to and, and care deeply about. Um, so I would just say there's a vibrant sector there of um, women's involvement. Okay, we have time for maybe two more short questions. This gentleman in the green tie. And then I think this lady in the, the blue turban will go last. So this gentleman in the green tie in the front row here in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Mima Nadelkovic, I'm a CEO of Africa Global Schaefer Group. We've been investing, developing agro-industry and power in the region the last 40, 50 years. So we know a little bit about the bush and the cities. The question I have, and I've and I'm glad finally the Suba came to. We spoke about a ton of different drivers. We forgot one very key driver called opportunity and jobs. The youth population obviously is exploding, and I'm not seeing, I'd like to really invite other panelists to chime in and say, okay, what do we do about actually creating opportunities and jobs? Because that's what it's all about, is desperation. So I'd love to hear on that, please. Thank you. Thank you for this question. And, and yes, again, it's all about how can we create more opportunities to the youth um, so, that, um, so that Malian people can stay in their country and really contribute to the development of, um, of that beautiful country. Um, I want to give two examples, maybe three. <laughs> um, so um, in, in, in Africa right now, there is um, really the trend of, um, you know, startup. It's all about entrepreneurship. And there are a lot of programs that are doing, that are offering grants to, um, to youth so that they can start their business in any type of, any type of sector. So, for example, um, here um, in, in, uh, in, in Mali, we have what we call, in French, we call that accountapreneur, but in English, it's more like um, incubator, where we are, we select like 10 youth in, in the city, and we are really trying to help them, give, um, give them some capacity training so that they can really build their own business. Um, I have another example that is more like in the northern part, um, which is the Timbuktu Youth Renaissance, and again, it's all about um, giving opportunity to the youth, giving them grants so that they can start their own business. Um, another example also that I want to bring that is really personal to me is that, um, again, when we talk about opportunity, Mali is really, um, not only there is a lot of youth in Mali, but there is also a large diaspora 
outside, whether it's here in the United States, in France, in Canada. And I'm noticing a lot of people that are coming back to Mali despite the crisis that we are going through to really try to see what they can bring to their country. And this is something that is really, um, that is, that is really personal to me and is really interesting. So, um, um, yeah, there, there's really a lot of opportunity and hopefully um, if there are people that are interested in, in really invest, I think that will be absolutely amazing because there is really a need um, for that in Mali. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree, and it's sort of part and parcel. You know, we complain about 3% or whatever it is, on, on the, or celebrate, you know, 3% unemployment, uh, whereas in Mali, the un and underemployment has got to be up there, you know, 60, 60, 70% and rising. You know, so much of the focal point of the international community is on damage control and stopping the situation from getting even worse. Um, you know, with respect to, uh, you know, you just look at the number of IDPs, tens of thousands of new IDPs, you know, and who, who actually had jobs. It wasn't perfect, but they had jobs as herders. They had jobs uh, cultivating their land, um, and and you know now um, they're finding themselves in you know squalid IDP camps, uh, you know in in Burkina Faso and Mali. So I think, uh, but it's uh, I have a friend who works in uh, with a big Swiss organization um, NGO trying to develop um, unemployment or trying to address the unemployment problems, and he was saying from a year ago, you know he's so frustrated because the funding from the international community has now uh, migrated into emergency response. So um, anyway, I hear you. We have just a couple minutes left for this woman who's been patiently raising her hand every time. She's in the third row. <laughs> and she gets the privilege of the last question. Ooh, yeah. Thank you so very much and thank you for all your presentation. I will stand up. <laughs> so. Uh, to piggyback to uh, women empowerment, the, we are all talking about uh, uh, girls' education, women entrepreneurship, but we, there is a fundamental problem with women. Women, we have thousands, millions of girls in Africa who are born and have no birth certificates. Lately, they, there have been an, a, an article, there was an article lately talking about a young girls, 10, I think 10, 10 year old, who is one of the best chess players in, in the world. And it countries, developed countries are trying to get her out of uh, uh, her country, but the they, they could not because she has no birth certificate. In Cameroon, for instance, Eastern part of Cameroon, we have over 50,000 girls who cannot go to school because they have no birth certificate. How do we solve that problem? Having human beings on this planet that are not accountable, that nobody knows about, they're just roaming and nobody knows about them. So please let us know what to do with these people. Um, I'm going to jump in and say absolutely, you've put your finger on something, right? The absence of a birth certificate, the, the people not going to get birth certificates is a sign of the absence of the state. People do not see that as something that they should do, that has any value, that is important. Um, there's a whole layer of things that fundamentally are about the relationship between the society and the state. And until people can understand that in fact a birth certificate has 
any number of important values, right? It's, it's importance in one's life in the long term, and that means parents understanding that, right? And, and, um, and that disconnect has been going on for a very long time. I know having worked in a number of countries in Africa that this is, you see this in many places, Cameroon in particular. Um, and the question is, how do you, you know, it's sensibilization, you get the, you, you have to be very forceful about all the layers in which this is important, but you're dealing with this, um, many people who, the state has never been provided services for them, so why should they mark the birth of a child, which is a, 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 something that's personal and they don't see as connected, um, so. Um, sometimes, but not always. So I think that would be very specific, actually. Uh, it is a problem for children across the board. Probably more boys get them, but it, it is a problem for um, both boys and girls. Good question. I just got the bat signal from Kat, so we are oh. going to clear the stage. But please join me in thanking our panelists today. I think it was an excellent discussion. Well, we are honored today to have House Foreign Affairs Committee lead Republican Michael McCall of Texas deliver the keynote speech today at the Sahel Summit. Representative McCall has been a leader on issues related to Sahel. He's been involved in the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership Bill and the Global Fragility Act. He recently traveled to Africa with a bipartisan delegation where he focused on women's economic development, trade and investment, and counterterrorism. Representative McCall also spent six years as the chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security where he worked on policies to protect the American people. His, partition, his participation today is a testament to the importance of this region. Representative McCall, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, well, thank you, Judd, and uh, uh, thank you, CSIS. I uh, worked with you many times. Uh, the last time was with Jim Lewis on the uh, report to the president on cybersecurity. Uh, I think it was probably the most downloaded document on the internet and uh, uh, just do great work uh, here. And so thanks for having me. It's, this is a very important issue. It's very timely uh, to be speaking here on the 18th anniversary of uh, perhaps one of the most tragic uh, days uh, that America has experienced, 9-11. Uh, it always seems surreal to me uh, looking back, thinking back, <clears throat> watching the airplanes uh, attack the buildings, uh, going to the largest um, economic symbol of power, to the symbol of military power, and the third was to hit the symbol of political power. Fortunately, the last one didn't make it. Those are the first heroes of 9-11 that brought down the airplane in, in uh, Pennsylvania. And um, we had our... Uh, ceremony this morning at the Capitol uh, to sing God Bless America, which is the tradition that we, we hold. Um, this uh, issue, uh, the Sahel, as I was telling Judd, I, I've followed ISIS and Al-Qaeda most of my professional career, the, the rise of the fall of the caliphate, uh, but the Sahel, the Sahel is really the hot spot now. 
it's the area where we're really focusing our attention and we're trying to do uh, something about it. I think it's important that we're gathered here on this day, the 18th anniversary of the horrific September 11th attacks to discuss our ongoing fight against terrorism. Uh, I remember that day vividly as the attacks unfolded. Every minute felt like an hour. We prayed the worst was over after the planes stopped coming. But in the days and weeks that followed, we realized the worst was only beginning as families searched for loved ones who would never come home. And first responders dug through the rubble at Ground Zero to save those that they could. And service members deployed around the world to hunt terrorists and bring them to justice. And I remember visiting Firehouse 10 right across from uh, the World Trade Center. They lost the majority of their firefighters that day. And they still have a flag hanging there that hung on 9-11. It's a tattered flag, smoke screened, um, really um, profound. Today we honor those brave men and women who gave their lives that day and since, and thank those who have continued to fight to keep us safe here at home. After 9-11, counterterrorism and homeland security became our top priorities. Our determination to prevent another attack inside America was a national call to action. And I dedicated my entire professional career since then uh, in this field. Our intelligence gathering capabilities grew. The Department of Homeland Security was created. Our tools became even more sophisticated and our military's precision was refined. As a result, we have successfully degraded terrorist operations throughout the Middle East including taking down the mastermind of 9-11 and having crushed the physical so-called caliphate in Iraq and Syria. Before serving as a lead Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I served as chairman of the Committee of Homeland Security for six years. Six very intense years. Six years were my threat briefings. I heard about external operations being plotted inside the United States to kill Americans one per month. That has changed dramatically since that time. And in both capacities, I've followed the threat of radical Islamist terrorism closely. As chairman, I witnessed the rise and fall of ISIS firsthand and was proud to champion landmark legislation that helped keep America more secure. And in the 18 years since 9-11, we have done a very good job, in my judgment, taking terrorists off the field around the globe. But also, in my judgment, we have been less successful with the prevention piece. And this is the piece I wanted to talk to you about today. We spent trillions, trillions of dollars with our military killing. But I think we need to look at prevention as a better way to solve this problem. And like former Secretary Mattis once said, if we don't fully fund the State Department and our peacekeeping missions, then we need to simply buy more bullets. It's simply that choice. He understood, just as I do, that our best defense against terrorism should start with preventing instability and stopping radicalization before it occurs. Our military successes in the Middle East have sent terrorists fleeing to other locations, including Africa, to find safe haven and regroup. Today, it is estimated that 10,000 ISIS and Al-Qaeda jihadists are active in the continent. This is deeply concerning and a reminder that the fight against terrorism and violent extremism is not over. 
Attacks have been rapidly increasing across the Sahel. In April, I visited and saw firsthand the security threats and heard the growing concern from those on the ground. The United States must continue to stand with our African and European partners in the fight against radical Islamist terrorism. However, addressing the increasing terrorism activity in the Sahel will not come from just a military solution. We must also address the root causes of extremism and support citizen responsive governance, combat corruption, and prioritize economic development. Proactive investments in security and development now will make the United States and our allies safer in the long run. We must make a multifaceted approach and better coordinate our efforts. It is the only way to prevent terrorism from gaining a larger foothold in these countries. And that is why, as Jed mentioned, I introduced the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership Act. This House-passed bipartisan legislation will ensure a well-coordinated interagency effort that works with countries such as Burkina, Faso, Niger, Nigeria, and Chad to build their capacity to conduct counterterrorism operations, prevent the spread of violent extremism, and strengthen the rule of law. Boosting the counterterrorism capabilities of these and other countries must continue to be a strategic and long-term priority for the United States. It also requires the State Department, USAID, and the Department of Defense work together to develop a counterterrorism strategy in Africa and increase congressional oversight of our programs. We need to ensure all of our investments are properly targeted. And it is clear that we, we need more, not less, engagement in the Sahel. We also need to think long-term about our assistance. Terrorist groups exploit local grievances over lack of economic opportunity and exploit weak and ineffective governance. That is why Chairman Engel and Lindsey Graham and I introduced the Bipartisan Global Fragility Act to improve the way the United States approaches <clears throat> the fragile states and stabilization efforts. And I must say the one campaign that Bono's organization have taken this to be their number one priority uh, on the Hill to get this bill passed. That's how important they see it. That's how important I see it. This really truly is the prevention side and the prevention piece to prevent war. We must focus our efforts on prevention and stabilization to get at the root causes of extreme poverty. The Sahel will be a prime target for such efforts under the Global Fragility Act. And unless we better address the underlying issues, we will continue to see radicalization in vulnerable communities. So I applaud uh, CSIS for convening this important summit to discuss security and development challenges uh, in the Sahel. I want to thank the embassy representatives from our allies in Europe and Africa who are here and on the front lines dedicating their forces and resources to address these threats. Um, I've spent the better part of my career in life tracking threats. First, uh, after the 93 World Trade Center bomber when Ramzi Youssef escaped and joined his uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Uh, the original plot of 93 was actually not at the World Trade Center, but rather 12 Jewish synagogues. 
Why 12? The 12 tribes of Israel. And then Ramsey escaped, went back to Pakistan, and uh, plotted what was called the Bajoinka plot to bring down 12 airliners simultaneously with microbomb devices. Why 12? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel, their hatred of the Jews. He talked to his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, about flying airplanes into buildings. He also attempted an assassination attempt on the Pope in the Philippines, unsuccessfully. But successfully, his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, pulled off one of the worst terror attacks on American soil. So we never forget this day. We never forget what they did. We will always follow this threat wherever it goes, whether it be in Iraq, whether it be in Syria, whether it be in Saudi, or now, whether it be in Sahel, we will look at this threat. We are getting better at this. We are safer today than the, we, we were before 9-11. And that's important to say because a lot of people, they don't know, they ask me that, are we safer today? We, uh, we are safer today. The apparatus we've put in place, the intelligence, uh, connecting the dots, we are safer as a nation but we need to do more with this threat to make sure another 9-11 never, ever happens again. Let us never, ever forget what happened that day. Thank you so much. Okay, we're gonna break for 15 minutes, so now you can enjoy your coffee. And then uh, we'll set up for panel two in a second. Okay, why don't we uh, take a seat and we'll start panel two. I have to say that I'm a bit intimidated. Panel one uh, was a smashing success. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on us uh, to meet the caliber of their insights uh, and to uh, perhaps answer some of their recommendations. Uh, but uh, in panel two, we're going to talk about the way forward, and we're very fortunate to have representatives of the United States government, Norwegian government, Netherlands government, Spanish government, and German government. And uh, we're going to try something a little bit new for a CSIS Africa program event. I'm going to direct a question towards each of our panelists, and then we're going to open up for a very brief response from uh, the others so that everyone has a bite at the apple. It is going to be incredibly successful or it will be a major failure. So please bear with us. Um, so why don't we start with uh, Heke Tile, who is the Director of um, Civilian Crisis and Prevention and Stability in the German Foreign Office. Um, you know, your government uh, just recently talked with the, with the French and the, Afri and the European Union about uh, expanding the Sahel Alliance. Um, excuse me, say that again. So in July of 2017, you launched the Sahel Alliance, um, and it was an international coordination platform to do more and do better in the Sahel. So I think the best way to start off the panel is perhaps a little report card. Uh, what's working? What's not working? Many more countries have joined the alliance now. We have many envoys. Some of them are here today. Um, there's also talk now of expanding the G5 Sahel to include ECOWAS uh, countries. So how does this work in practice? Thank you first for having me here. And um, thank you to the audience for sharing our interest in the Sahel region. I think it's a very important hotspot 
um, and it was not so obvious before 2015-2017 that uh, such a large cooperation, coordination of different donors, different actors could work together for one target, for one objective. Um, as you said, 2017, the Alliance was founded as a response to an initiative of the region, of the five uh, countries, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Chad. Um, now we have 12 members in the Sahel Alliance, not only countries, donor countries, but the United Nations, uh, the African Union, the, um, the European Union, so and the World Bank as well. That means we have not only national actors, but we have multilateral actors, which is quite important for such an objective. Um, as you know, the, the Secretariat has moved from, um, from Nouakchott to, to, to Brussels. Um, we have six groups working on different questions. Um, I think after two years, I would say the Sahel Alliance is a success. Um, it is a success because partners work together on the same level. Uh, what we do need is uh, a better coordination. Uh, we do coordinate uh, for the same objective, but coordination should not only be the exchange of Excel lists uh, about activities. It should really be um, a coordination with the local partners and our engagement um, is to enhance uh, state structures and increase trust in the state again. Um, in the first panel, this was mentioned um, on, different, in, on different topics. Um, security and state should go together. If we do not have a security, then it's almost impossible um, to have like opportunities, uh, economic opportunities for the younger ones. Uh, we do not allow people to work, to move, to, to live uh, in a decent way. Um, they have lived for, for ages. Um, what we do have as Germans is uh, this stabilization approach. Um, this follows a very comprehensive understanding of security. Um, we support the security sector in different ways, uh, like in the MINUSMA mission, like in UCAP. Um, we have sent militaries, which is um, not very traditional for, for the Germans, um, but we do, on the other hand, uh, development work interlinked to these uh, military support. Because if you have only a support for the military structures um, and you work especially in the border areas, um, the people in the center of the country they feel like they have been forgotten. Um, there is no support for them. And therefore, we see stabilization like for the security sector reforms, which um, talk about human rights too, uh, which talk about the civilian duties of soldiers. Um, and we, we have an approach uh, to decentralization, that the state is seen in the regions and not only on the capital levels. 
Okay, thank you. Let's, let's try this experiment. Do any of the panelists have anything that they would like to add uh, to those initial opening points? Okay, please, go ahead. You're good. Is that red enough? Yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much, and, and th uh, thank you to CSIS for, for inviting me. Um, uh, as Norway, of course, we are a, a firm uh, believer in international cooperation and, and multilateral solutions to, to global problems. And as the Sahel is for us a, a global problem, uh, we, we look to, to cooperate with, uh, with the, the rest of the international community. Uh, so for us, as a small country, uh, having just one embassy in the Sahel, in Bamako, uh, we need to cooperate with the rest of the international community in order to, uh, to uh, um, bring our funding and efforts uh, in the right direction. Uh, so for us, the UN uh, is a partner both in development efforts, political efforts, and in security. Uh, as the Germans, we provide uh, soldiers um, and uh, technical equipment to MINUSMA. Uh, and we have a, a military transport plane uh, this year uh, who has been providing quite substantial transport capacity to, to the military operation. Uh, but even though we're not a part of the EU, uh, we also uh, contribute and participate within the EU mechanisms uh, and support uh, both the, the EU CAP uh, and other mechanisms that the EU, EU has. And we provide some funding uh, for civilian uh, issues to the G5 Sahel. So even though uh, we have not yet joined the Sahel Alliance. Uh, we are looking into it, considering it, uh, and, and we see that, uh, that France, Germany, and the EU has, has succeeded in bringing very important actors into the alliance. Thank you. Well, maybe I can uh, turn to Robert for the next question. Uh, uh, Robert Jean uh, Siegert is the Deputy Director of Sub-Saharan Africa Department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands. Um, so there's a lot of advantages in, in the Sahel Alliance and uh, these coordination mechanisms, right? It's an ability to present a unified front uh, when thinking about development, security, political engagement. I think it underscores the urgency in the sense of purpose. Uh, but there's also these transactional costs uh, when you're engaging regional governments and aligning budgets and convening conferences like this one. Um, you know, and I've heard from African uh, interlocutors that uh, they're worried about the bandwidth issue, that they feel overwhelmed by the amount of uh, engagement from different elements of uh, the international community. Um, so I thought it would be useful to hear your opinion about how do we get the division of labor right. Um, whether you're in the Sahel Alliance or not, how, do, how does your government or other governments leverage their strengths uh, to press for a resolution? Now, thanks a lot. There are a couple of things I'd like to, uh, to say. It's an important uh, question, international cooperation. Are we efficient, effective? Um, um, and the answer is not always uh, clear, but a couple of uh, dimensions. I think, first of all, what is uh, very clear to me is that in the wider international community, there's a very clear sense of urgency. Uh, the needs are enormous. We see all these insecurity uh, issues, an uh, increase of intercommunal um, violence, uh, driven or worsened by uh, climate change impacts, scarcity of natural resources, uh, population pressure, and all that. So an increased sense of uh, urgency. It's also clear that there are uh, uh, risks of uh, fragmentation 
uh, of our international uh, efforts. And in the words of uh, one minister from, uh, from the region, uh, the Sahel is the graveyard for donor pilots. I think that, uh, uh, that, is, uh, that is true. So it is essential that we cooperate. It's essential that we skill up our efforts, that we learn from each other about what works and what doesn't work, that we do not reinvent the wheel. And from that perspective, I think uh, the uh, Sahel Alliance is a step in the, in the right uh, direction. Uh, quite a few plans are there. Now it is time to implement them. Um, I think the division of, uh, of labor in the area of security is a little bit, uh, a little bit less clear. Of course, there's MINUSMA, there's BRAKAM, uh, uh, there are different EU training uh, missions, uh, there's the G5, which is supported by, uh, by the US, uh, France, um, the EU, and so on. So it is complicated, but if you ask the question if it's true that, for example, the littoral coast of uh, West Africa are threatened to who is the uh, owner of the overall security ag uh, agenda architecture is not entirely clear. So I think there the coordination mechanism is a little bit, and the division of labor is a little bit less, uh, less clear. Um, but what I think is most important that even if we recognize that there are different players, eh, we also have multinational, multilateral institutions, the bank, the fund, they all have their own approach, and that is fine. But what is, what is absolutely clear in my mind is that we have a collective effort, collective messaging. The core of the problem, problems in the Sahel is political. We need to, to make sure, we need to get better, uh, ensuring that our messages vis-a-vis uh, -vis the different uh, governments and authorities are clear about the need to uh, reform, the need to implement agreements, the need to make sure that there is adequate service delivery, uh, that the rule of law is respected, in other words, uh, that some, some sort of uh, social contract is uh, re-established. Uh, Robert, maybe I, I can press you and then the rest of the panel. Um, I've, I've had a, a deluge of uh, envoys come and visit over the past year, and everyone writes these, I mean, they're beautiful, perfect strategies uh, about what to do with the Sahel. But um, what I always press on is, what is the, have you thought within your government, what is the key, you know, asset or key assets that you are bringing, you know, underneath that common voice and that financial contribution, uh, is there something that the government of the Netherlands or any of the governments on the panel see that is their unique <coughs> history or experience or capacity that they're bringing to make the, you know, the whole bigger than the sum of the parts? And then, do, you, do you have an answer then? I think Whitney. No, I, I think it's absolutely essential that we, uh, that we all realize that we are there for the long term. Whatever we try to do, it will take a long time, it will take a generation to, to really resolve the issues at stake. I think uh, most of the in ingredients we will agree on, it is uh, essential to create uh, a perspective for people, so uh, skills, uh, jobs, uh, but on top of that we work a lot on uh, rule of law. And uh, there are quite a few activities where we uh, really uh, try to ensure, for example, organizing um, high-level conferences, bringing together uh, people from the G5, military, um, political, um, other, uh, other leaders together with the uh, human rights uh, uh, commissions to discuss these matters. And it's absolutely vital, we think, that these elements of rule of law, respect for human rights, remain very high on the political agenda. Sure, good morning, thank you. 
Um, what I wanted to say uh, a bit about the United States is we have had embassies in all of these countries uh, really since independence. So we have a sustained history of bilateral engagement with each. And so although I think, uh, as you know, witness my being here today, our overall broad policy is driven from Washington and in conjunction and consultation with, uh, with our partners um, in the donor community particularly, Really, our day-to-day -day engagement is driven by our chiefs of mission and our country teams on the ground in each of these countries. I think the United States has had a multifaceted approach um, in our engagement. I think the reality, um, particularly in the what we would consider to be kind of the key three right now, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali, where instability is, is, is most present, is um, the most important thing, of course, is uh, engaging with the state and helping these states project presence to their populations. Um, I, we, we work through development and humanitarian assistance through USAID in several of the countries. We have MCC compacts to work on the fundamental organization of the economies that can create a situation that will encourage economic growth. And then, of course, um, we are known for security assistance, and we do have it. But I would emphasize that, as Heiko would note, was noting, one of the most as important aspects of our security assistance, and something I think the US brings to the table, is the security sector reform assistance. Because one of the most important aspects of the state being viewed in a positive way by the population throughout the country is for the security services to be viewed as part of the solution and not part of the problem. And it's a real challenge in the region and in an area where we would like to continue to be working. Thanks, Winnihike. Um, Robert was absolutely right when he said the problem needs a political solution, not a military solution. Um, for this political solution, we need the commitment and uh, the ownership of the countries we work together. Um, with all the weaknesses we know for the state structures, um, their first commitment and their first ownership was the initiative to work together and not to see their own national problem, but the problem and the challenges the region has. And um, we should not forget Chad, which is at the far end of this region and um, even concerned by other um, terrorist uh, attacks from the other side in the uh, Lake Chad Basin. That means we do not treat only one problem. We do need to, to treat two uh, in the region, which is a big bow between the Sahel and, uh, and the Lake Chad countries. Um, it is right that it is a long-term uh, solution needed. We talk about food security by climate change and, of course, by demographic uh, growth, which is well known for the region for decades. Um, what is the success story of the Sahel Alliance is um, that we share analysis. We share analysis not only between partners, but we share analysis between the countries concerned and us, and we have the same interest to beat non-democratics. And um, we want all of us improve effectiveness and efficiency. It is not a question of more and more money. It is a question of a better system and of a more targeted system.
Thank you. Let me make sure uh, Ambassador and Antonio Torres and then Enrique Moore, you have an opportunity to answer this question. Uh, thank you, Jude, and uh, thank you to CSIS for inviting me. I would like, first of all, to pay respect to the victims of 9-11, uh, to whom uh, we, 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 we keep in, in our memories, and in this sense, uh, Spain shares the grief uh, with the United States, as we've been also attacked by terrorism very seriously. Um, uh, concerning the Sahel, I must say that the, uh, the Sahel is a priority region for Spain due to our geographic situation. The distance between Morocco and Spain is 10 kilometers across the Strait of Gibraltar. So any kind of instability in the area uh, will affect uh, undoubtedly uh, not only the Maghreb but also Spain and, uh, and the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, for example, there are already signs, very worrying signs of instability uh, starting in, in countries such as Ghana or, uh, or Benin. Um, so uh, the Sahel is uh, becoming really a, a conundrum of all the um, problems and crises uh, in the area. As in the case of um, my colleagues, um, Spain has a multifaceted uh, approach. We uh, help in uh, development aid. We take part in the Sahel Alliance. Um, we chair the uh, agriculture and nutrition uh, panel. And uh, we contribute also to the security efforts and initiatives, both in the framework of uh, the EU, uh, EUTM, the EU training mission of uh, the Malian Armed Forces, but also with, uh, as in the case of Norway, Norway with uh, transport planes um, supporting Barkhane, MINUSMA, and um, uh, the G5 Sahel uh, Joint uh, Military Force. Uh, as far as uh, development aid is concerned, uh, we, uh, we have cooperation. We've had bilateral programs with uh, Mauritania, Niger, and Mali. And um, we are contributing to the new uh, priority investment program of the G5 Sahel with 85 million euros, which uh, is quite a lot for a country like Spain, which has suffered a very serious economic crisis in the recent years. So um, as, as my colleagues have said uh, pre previously, this is a long-term engagement, and we won't have uh, fast and quick uh, solutions. Uh, the instability will continue in the following years, and we'll have to remain engaged. It's the only way of uh, beating uh, terrorists and beating all those that want to uh, uh, um, upset the, the situation in the region. Thank you. Uh, I'll have you answer that, and I'll come back to you for the next question. Thank you. Um, I think there are quite a, a lot of similarities between the way we work uh, from the international community. And Norway also have, uh, has a Sahel strategy, uh, and, uh, but it's quite short, uh, so it's easy to, to read it. <laughs> it's a booklet. Uh, and and uh, the main uh, point in, this, in the strategy is actually to get a balance between the security, development, and politics, economic development right. Uh, so, so that is in, in one sentence what, what we 
focus on. Um, like I said, we, we, we have not been present in Mali or in the other Sahel uh, countries for, for a long time, uh, but we have had a bilateral development program with Mali since the, since the early 80s. And we have uh, cooperated through Norwegian uh, NGOs that have uh, good partners uh, in Mali uh, and also in parts of, of Mali uh, that uh, are difficult to, to reach. Um, and uh, we have also now uh, started a bilateral development program with Niger. So that is uh, a newer one, but it makes, uh, makes the Norwegian footprint uh, a bit bigger. Um, uh, we also have Norwegian institutions that have been cooperating with those, uh, those uh, countries or institutions in those countries for, for many years on climate change, uh, on, on food security, uh, on women's rights, uh, issues like that. So, so there are uh, things that we continue building on that has started uh, f quite a few years back. Thank you. Well, I'm going to introduce you now since uh, I let you talk first, but uh, Rigmor Elaine Koti is the uh, Deputy Director and of uh, the Section for the Horn of Africa and West Africa in the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I'm going to take this opportunity to connect uh, our conversation in Panel 1 to Panel 2. And we talked a lot in Panel 1 and Panel 2 about the incentives, the political incentives and disincentives um, that is preventing a lasting peace in the Sahel. Norway's had a very long history in supporting negotiations, often in multilateral settings. So I think that your government is a particularly good place to talk about how do we smartly combine uh, all the efforts of the governments, both on this panel, but our African partners, our Arab partners, other European partners, to change the calculus of the Sahelian actors. I think the panel this morning pointed out quite uh, effectively that certain governments uh, don't have a don't feel the internal pressure, at least right now, to do more for the people. And how do we change that? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, and and uh, that is a big question. Uh, and I'm not sure that Norway has the answer to it, but I can try. <laughs> at, at least give so, some, some, uh, uh, some insights to, to our lessons learned from, from different, uh, uh, different negotiations and different peace processes. Uh, and let me first of all say that Norway did not have a role in the process uh, bringing uh, the parties together under the, the Algiers Agreement. Um, so, so we have not uh, been a, an important partner for, for the Malian peace agreement this time. But we have 25 years of, of peace diplomacy uh, in Norway. So we have some lessons uh, that we can share. Uh, and one obvious one, of course, is that peace never comes easily uh, and that it takes a lot of time. Uh, and what is also important in the Sahelian context is, of course, that the, the conflicts have been, become much more, more complex than uh, they used to be. The Norwegian engagement for, uh, for peace diplomacy has been motivated by uh, the wish to save lives, uh, to re relieve human suffering and ensure human dignity. Uh, we have uh, seen peace diplomacy as a political priority. Uh, and today there are seven principles that uh, guide Norway's engagement, and I'll just quickly mention them. First, we have a willingness to, to talk with all kinds of actors. Second, we need to build trust. Norway can be impartial, but not neutral. Uh, Norway's engagement is built on principles of democracy and international standards. 
Third, patience and willingness to engage over time. It has been mentioned by, by everybody, I think, the need to have patience and to, to spend quite a lot of time uh, on, on negotiations. Fourth, we accept the possibility of failure. Uh, there is a big risk to, to peace negotiations, and, and we are willing to take that risk. Fifth, the parties themselves own the conflict and the process. That has also been mentioned earlier, and I think it is a very, very important uh, point. Sixth, discretion. Um, in peace diplomacy, often discrete diplomacy is better than negotiations conducted in the public eye. Seventh, Norway's engagement does not end when a peace agreement is signed. We must all work to create a sustainable peace has also been said by others here. So for us, we stress the need for inclusive peace and an inclusive peace process. Um, in Mali, to come back to, to the, the geographic area we're talking about today, what we used to look at as the traditionally the Tuareg rebellions have now uh, grown into a situation that is much more difficult with international terror groups entering the arena. Um, and that makes the scene of actors much wider and the challenges of finding a lasting solution for the whole Sahel very difficult. Um, I would like to, to just mention that uh, uh, we need to look at the reasons why these terror groups gain ground in the Sahel. Uh, I think everybody has been talking about the root causes. I think we keep coming back to the root causes. We need to look at why people uh, want to, to fight, uh, why they join terror groups, uh, and also why they migrate to Europe when they don't find any prospects uh, or, and jobs in, in their own countries. Um, so for us, uh, engaging in, uh, in uh, Mali uh, and in the Sahel is important. Uh, we have been uh, supporting the, the UN in the implementation of the agreement. Uh, last, or this summer, we actually also invited um, the different parties to the agreement to a study tour to Norway. Uh, the reason behind was that we have in Norway uh, a region that is uh, quite marginalized, and we have a, a group of, uh, uh, of Sami people, an ethnic group uh, that has their own culture, language, and, and way of, of living uh, that could be quite similar to the Tuareg uh, way of living. So uh, the idea was to show them how we have, as a state, tried to include uh, and, and respect their way of living within the Norwegian state. Uh, it was a very interesting trip. Uh, we, we had in the first, uh, the first delegation list received were only men. Uh, of course, the, the parties to the agreement uh, uh, and the leaders are men, but we insisted on having also women representatives from the different groups. That made the discussions with the different institutions in Norway much richer. Uh, and we heard also from the women participating that this was one of the first uh, possibilities they have had to actually discuss with the leaders of the different movements in, in the same kind of, of, of forums. So we, we think that was a, a good uh, way of including uh, women in the group, uh, 
putting a bit of pressure on, on the fact that we need to have an inclusive peace process. Um, and uh, we are now looking forward to see the report from the, the study tour to see what kind of, of conclusions they, they have drawn themselves from, from, that, uh, from that trip. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Thank you. You know, um, I want to open it up to the panel to talk about inclusiveness, which uh, we heard a lot, uh, both in your, your formal remarks and in panel one. Uh, D'Souba, I thought, made some really important points about where the Malian youth is. When I look across the Sahel, I see a very active uh, political opposition in Burkina calling for response to what's happening. I think Niger has a long history of that. In Mali, with you know the exception of wherever uh, Imam Diko goes, uh, the Malian political class has been quiet about the problems in central and northern Mali. So uh, this is really kind of, I want to broaden it out for anyone on the panel about the inclusiveness. How do we get the voices who are, who are truly frustrated with the status more involved? And more importantly, how do those groups and political groups, political opposition parties and others internal to ruling parties, that's fine as well, create a real domestic pressure uh, to make reforms? Because right now, as an observer, my view is that we're doing a lot of the pressing for reform. And at least in the case of Mali, uh, it's nascent at best. So, to anyone on the panel, how do we push for a more inclusive process? How do we engage civil society, political parties uh, to increase the pressure on leaders to respond to this crisis? So in the fine tradition of uh, government bureaucrats everywhere, I'm not going to answer the question you asked. I'm going to answer the question I wish you'd asked. <laughs> um, and, and it's really not to talk initially about inclusiveness, because, but I think that's an incredibly important. And I think in, in all of these um, in all of these nations, over time, really, um, development of, of vigorous and broad democratic institutions is is incredibly important to success. But really, when you look at Mali in the initial phases, what um, at least for the U.S. government, we are really looking at implementation of the Algiers Accord in a way that um, we hope promotes some stability in that country that then uh, really takes away some of the, um, the difficulties, hopefully, that allow each of their neighbors to, to uh, um, attack. And I'm thinking inclusiveness more regionally now and looking at leadership because, yes, it's entirely, I mean, we as part of our diplomacy um, talk to the governments uh, and certainly talk to the government of Mali at every level and encourage implementation, rapid implementation and forceful implementation of the Algiers Accord. Um, and work with the others. But we also believe that, uh, that there are other actors in the region who are probably in many ways more important than we are, which is other leaders in the region and the ECOWAS countries. And so we, um, as part of our policy, we think is, is engaging constantly with, um, with those leaders to encourage them, many of whom lead important troop contributing countries, many of whom have lost um, forces in Mali as part of the MINUSMA mission to push forward for peace because I think it's in everyone's interest in the region because um, obviously as a couple have noticed there there is uh, there is movement of instability uh, into into potentially the coastal countries and um, and that would be very negative 
Um, I would also note, and, and we're really encouraged by uh, the leaders' uh, ability to get together and talk to each other. So for example, really looking forward to readouts from the ECOWAS Extraordinary Summit this weekend in Ouagadougou, where they will be talking about um, the security situation, among other things. Uh, just, uh, just two remarks. I think indeed it's essential that we uh, engage effectively, not just with political leaders but also with uh, with opposition. One of the steps we have taken to um, to increase uh, um, that uh, that dialogue is that we have opened uh, embassy offices in uh, Burkina and uh, Niger and uh, and Chad because we want to be uh, represented everywhere in the in the region. We already had a substantial embassy in uh, in Bamako. Um, but on top of the uh, national and the regional level, I think it is important uh, to also look for that inclusiveness and dialogue on a more local level. After all, the local levels where most of the uh, conflicts are being uh, exploited, where uh, you find uh, vulnerable youth that may be uh, radicalized, uh, and where the actual issues around service delivery need to be resolved. And one of the ways to do that is, uh, for example, working through NGOs. We have some activities, for example, to, uh, uh, to help uh, train, coach uh, youth leaders in order to, uh, to improve local accountability mechanisms. Mm, just one, one word in addition to what my colleague said. Um, we are lucky we have embassies in all the five countries, um, but very small, very small embassies. Um, but fortunately, there you can have contacts not only to the government, but to civil society, to the opposition in the parliament. And we can encourage, for instance, um, parliament members to use uh, the parliamentary assembly in the ECOVAS. Um, for their for their efforts and for their courses uh, to bring forward, what what seems important to us is this triple nexus of um, humanitarian aid, development, and um, peace promotion. That means not only supporting security forces to do their job better, but um, to embed this uh, into a whole system where, into a whole inclusive system where uh, young people who do no longer accept the traditional um, systems and, and uh, traditional leaders, they have their own hopes, they have their own uh, work they want to do. They, they have to build their families, so they need a job, they need opportunities to live better. Um, if these three, three parts of the, of the nexus um, are interlinked, and uh, we do not focus only on security forces, we do have a chance in the region. Uh, I, I'm going to turn to Antonio in a second, but I would be remiss if I didn't read just a short excerpt from the latest UN experts, uh, panel of experts that just released in August, and I think this gets to the heart of what I'm pushing for here in the first panel. They said, 
that the panel has noted a sharp increase in the manipulation of popular resentment against the Algiers Agreement. Political actors, opinion leaders, community activists, and media portrayed the agreement as a reward to minority communities from the north that would threaten the territorial integrity of Mali and render other communities vulnerable. And I think I get, this is, the report is fantastic, it's 100 plus pages, but I think that gets to the heart of some of the things we talked about in both panels. But uh, Antonio, let me ask you to respond to the, the top, the question on the table, and then I'll come back to you for the next set. Thank you, Jude. Um, well, I think that the, in order to move things forward, especially in Mali, one of the important things is to get on board a civil society, and especially women and youth. Uh, through the pressure of these groups, uh, probably the local and national authorities will, uh, will admit that they have to produce results, especially in the implementation of the, of the Alger Agreement. Uh, one incredible thing uh, about the, the um, process, the peace process, is that in the follow-up committee of this agreement, there's not one single woman. So there are only men, and uh, in spite of uh, the EU pressures, to uh, include uh, representatives, women representatives, it hasn't been accepted by the different groups, not uh, the platform, not the coordination, not the government. So there's no one, one single Malian woman in this, uh, in this process, which is uh, a shame, I think. On the other hand, uh, I must say that on a bilateral basis, we've been promoting and uh, supporting the role of women in the, in the Sahel, and especially in the framework of the G5 Sahel. Um, we uh, supported this process, and thankfully, uh, in the last meeting in uh, Niamey uh, last year, uh, this platform was created, and it was accepted by the G5 Sahel, so it's one of the organs, the official organs of the, of the group now. So uh, I think that this kind of initiatives could really contribute to the, to the progress of uh, the situation in, in the Sahel. Thanks. Excellent. So now let me formally introduce you. This was a bit awkward. Next time I will do that in the beginning. Uh, uh, but Ambassador Antonio Torres Dulce, you're the special ambassador for the Sahel for uh, the Spanish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And the, the question that I want to ask you is about uh, sanctions. So the UN uh, extended its sanction regime in Mali to target those who delay the implementation of the 2015 peace agreement. Uh, the UNC uh, members indicated that the sanctions have contributed uh, and changed the behavior of a number of individuals. Um, I thought we could, you could start us off to talk about the efficacy of sanctions. Um, and do we need to think about carrots as well as sticks? Uh, to begin with, you know that, that this uh, sanctions regime was introduced by the Security Council by its resolution 2374 in 2017. Uh, basically, it consists on a travel ban and an asset freeze uh, of the persons which hinder the peace process in Mali or take any kind of action uh, against its uh, implementation. Uh, the incredible thing is that the, uh, in the list of uh, individuals to be sanctioned, there are only three people, uh, which uh, 
it's, it's a miracle. With everything what's going on in Mali, only three persons are really subject to, to, uh, to, to this kind of, of punishment, uh, in spite of the situ situation, the dire situation of the peace process. Uh, so I think that the, a lot of reflection must be taken within the uh, committee, the sanctions committee of this, uh, of this regime, because I think that there is something which is not uh, being done properly. Um, as far as um, uh, incentives is concerned, well, I think that the, even um, the fact of uh, not including people in the list of, uh, of, of these sanctions is already an incentive. Uh, so uh, I think that we should try to increase the list to uh, enlarge it. And then perhaps this would be a, a more a stick than a carrot, because uh, if, don't, if we are not honest with ourselves, in, in, we do not admit that there are many other actors, that they are hindering the process, it's, it, 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 we, will not, uh, we will not improve, we will not advance at all. So uh, I think that the, I, would, I would prefer more sticks in this case and less carrots. I think that the international community has already offered a lot of uh, support, a lot of uh, carrots uh, for the process. Uh, as I said before, um, it seems that um, many of the actors in Mali are more interested in the, in the process than in the outcome of the process. And uh, without uh, a little bit of uh, um, positive incentives in the, set, in the sense of de dis deterrence, in the sense that if you don't want to get uh, to appear in this list and be uh, subject to this kind of very mild sanctions, on the other one, on the other hand, um, you probably will will be uh, on the papers in the United Nations. I hope uh, in the near future we can have a very a larger conversation about the uh, the efficacy of sanctions, um, but we'll have to save that for another day. Um, what I do want to open up to the rest of the panel um, is building on uh, Antonio's points about um, what are the next steps. You know, how do we think about sanctions and carrots uh, going forward? Maybe um, I very much uh, I, I agree with uh, uh, what my Spanish colleague just uh, just said, and uh, sanctions are important. I think it's important, essential, that we go after um, the the main spoilers and the and the kingpins in the regional criminal networks. Um, there are different ways um, to do that, uh, including uh, law um, enforcement. Um, uh, but in terms of uh, thinking about carrots, I think one of the things that is, uh, that is important is that when you, when you do that, for example, um, go, uh, go after the people who are, transport, uh, who are transporting through the Sahel, you need to make sure that you also invest in alternative li livelihoods. Um, it's not so much as a carrot as, uh, as, as a complementary, uh, complementary effort. When we turn, I can turn. Does anyone have a, another send the answer to this, or I can ask Whitney a, a new question? All right, we'll do a new question. So now I will formally introduce Whitney. She is the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for West Africa, the Bureau of African Affairs at the Department of State. 
So Whitney, the U.S. government often talks about um, that we need a security response that will create time and space. It's more of a DOD terminology, but we'll, we'll say, we'll, we'll expand to the whole U.S. government. And that this time and space will allow diplomats and, the pol and political actors to pursue political solutions. Um, but I think as we've talked about today, this is extremely difficult right now uh, when uh, we may not have full political commitments from actors. Uh, it's, I think, even harder when the, the constellation of security vehicles, whether it's Manusma or the G5 Sahel or the Malian security forces, I think we can all agree, have shortcomings. So I guess what I'd like you to start us off with is, um, should we be rethinking our approach? And uh, probably the, the theme of the whole conference is, what's the right balance? Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> I think it to answer the... Um, the essential question. No, it, you know, look, this is a, a classic stabilization conundrum. Um, I mean, we do believe a security response uh, in this case is absolutely vital. Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, you don't just take, uh, you don't take land, you don't take space. You have to be able to um, hold it in a, in a realistic way. And it's important that committed political actors follow in and state actors follow in behind the security forces to start projecting governance um, into the region, into any region where there are security actions. Um, part of this is why the U.S. Uh, and others have put so much emphasis on implementing the Algiers Accord in Mali. But I absolutely take your point. Look, we are, we are not naive. The, the accord is difficult. It requires very difficult political will on the part of the government of Mali, but we fully recognize in each step of the way as um, with each benchmark, um, it will create difficult political decisions for all of the signatory parties. Um, and so I don't think that we um, are, are naive that this is a panacea, but it is the framework that exists that has been signed to by all of the parties that looks forward at a longer term uh, area, time of peace and stability in Mali that then would give, I think, the state space to take on some of the larger jihadist and, and intercommunal violence that has come in, in, um, in during the time. So implementation, it, it will be a tangible sign of political commitment by the signatory parties and a willingness to make those difficult choices that Mali, in this case, needs to move forward. Our approach in the Sahel is to work by, with, and through our partners and all of our allies, many of whom are here today. Um, our interventions in the security sector, in the development field, and diplomatically are geared to enable these partners to address the problems on their own. They're not there yet and will likely need our assistance for many years, but that's our long-term goal. Um, no partner is perfect, and MINUSMA, the G5, the FAMA, and other national militaries and governments all have a role to play. And coordinating across these entities is key to long-term success. And I would also note that, you know, for all of us, I think it's important to begin to have, um, working with the Malians, uh, a post-MINUSMA vision of what security looks like in this state. So what are we working towards and who fills that space as the MINUSMA mission at some point, you know, begins to transition, transition forward? You know, is it the FAMA? Is it the FAMA with the G5? And how then can all of us, the partners, be working effectively with the, with the government of Mali and others to ensure that that's an effective um, security 
uh, a provider that that is um, what is the, is recognized and respected by the population and is effective for providing security of the state. Um, we think the G5 Sahel is, is on the right track. It's an African organization. It's created by the countries to embody a holistic approach to security, um, looking specifically at security, but also with a strong development component. The governance, resilience, and physical infrastructure pieces need to be developed alongside the security effort. Our embassies in the field take the same approach. We try to integrate our diplomatic development and defense efforts to ensure they are mutually reinforcing. And ultimately, a peaceful, stable Sahel will depend on the political commitment of all of the countries involved. Thanks. Thank you, Whitney. OK, last round, Robin, before we go uh, to questions. And uh, you know, I'd like to hear uh, for those on the panel who have thoughts about the security response. Uh, as Whitney said, um, how do we balance it with the political actors? How do we support and coordinated many different security services and international organizations with varying capacities and mandates? You know, how do we, uh, as the other theme, I guess, of uh, the conference is address the root causes? So I'll see if anyone has a thought. Thank you. Um, I think what is our aim is to, to, to see that the national security forces are capacitated to provide security to the populations in the region. That is what we're trying to do. Uh, what we also should think a lot about, I think, is to see that these security forces have the trust and the confidence uh, of the populations. Because as it is today, uh, in many other countries we're talking about, there is no trust in the security forces from the populations. Um, and again, that brings us back to uh, the question of uh, establishing good governance, public institutions that are there for everyone, a uh, fair share of, of, of development around the country, not only in the northern parts of Mali that have been kind of the, the focus since the Algiers agreement, but also in, in other parts that are, are poor and underdeveloped. Um, so I think that is, that is one very important issue. Now, um, the, the cooperation between the different uh, countries in the G5 Sahel, we also think that that is very important. Uh, they, they, we have seen that the threats are transnational, uh, and there is a, a, uh, it's, it is a very good idea that the countries cooperate to see uh, how they can better try and, and, and uh, prevent uh, this from happening. Um, now, um, Norway have, have, has also been a uh, victim of a terror attack. Uh, so even countries where the security forces are well uh, educated and, and function well, we were surprised by the one man that uh, attacked our country. Uh, the point is, it is not easy, not even for well-developed countries. Uh, so, so for the poor countries in the Sahel, of course, this is a huge challenge, and we can't expect that to be solved in, in, in a few years. Uh, just uh, very briefly, I, um, underlining the, the sense of urgency, I think we all feel. I, I saw that the Secretary General of the United Nations also said a couple of days ago when he was in Kinshasa, we are not uh, winning uh, the war on terrorism in the, uh, in the Sahel. So I think it's clear that there is uh, an urgency to step up our efforts. Um, however, we are concerned um, when we look at, uh, at the budgets of the different uh, countries in the G5, 
uh, about very high levels of uh, military expenditure. And if you have uh, a military expenditure of more than 20, sometimes 30 percent of your of your budget, it's clear that that is not good for your um, development investments that are also needed to grow out of the situation in the long term. So there's a clear dilemma here. Um, my last remark would be when we talk about the balance uh, between development and, and, and security, that it is absolutely essential to keep uh, the questions of uh, rule of law uh, on the agenda of the international community as well. Um, I think the, the crucial question for the whole situation is terrorism is the source or is it a symptom of what is happening in the region? And uh, we are convinced that it is a symptom. Um, and there are some studies uh, raising up questions about uh, bad behaviors of uh, national security forces, which w was followed um, by uh, radicalization and um, recruiting young people uh, for these terrorist groups. So when we talk about uh, supporting security forces, we have to focus on this behavior too. Uh, it is not only the money we give, or it's not only the structures we have to change. Um, security forces should understand themselves as part of the population and should protect their population and not make the situation more difficult, more complicated, more complex. Um, only supporting security forces could be could be even or could have even uh, reverse effects. Um, therefore, it should always be embedded in different activities we have around. Um, and as you may know, the G7 have uh, in Biarritz, um, they made a new proposal. And I think uh, our Chancellor and uh, President Macron will present the proposal to the General Assembly of the United Nations uh, in the coming days, um, because we are convinced Sahel Alliance is not enough. If we want to, uh, to have a success on the long term, we have to do more, and we have to do it with the G7 and all our partners, and even find new partners for this region. Thank you. Antonio? Yeah. Uh, thank you. I fully share the point of view expressed by, by our German colleague. Uh, um, the G5 Sahel uh, is a very positive initiative uh, in the sense that it's, it's an initiative taken by Sahelian states on their own, which is very, very courageous, considering the lack of resources, the, 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 all the difficulties that they are suffering. But at the same time, uh, from um, Spain, we believe that the, they don't have the means, they don't have the resources to confront the, the, the threat that they are, that they are um, facing at present. Um, in that sense, and uh, taking into account that three of the G5 Sahel countries are already ECOWAS countries, uh, we would favor the, the, the cooperation of G5 Sahel with ECOWAS um, in order to uh, try to uh, um, limit and stabilize and, uh, and control uh, these uh, threats. At the same time, 
terrorism is a transnational uh, phenomenon which is uh, threatening the whole region. It's not only uh, affecting the, the G5 Sahel uh, countries. Um, and um, it's risking to spill over um, all, all, all around the region. So I think it's in the best interest of um, not only the, the Sahelian countries, but also of the West African countries, that there's a stronger cooperation um, between them and um, ECOWAS, in that sense. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I had uh, almost an hour to ask hard questions. Now it's your turn. Uh, so we have just a little time. I saw him pop up right there, and then we'll, uh, we'll do a couple more rounds. Well, the mic will be coming shortly. I also have the disadvantage of not seeing the Q&A from the first panel, so, you know, share the love around. Please don't cheat and ask questions throughout all the panels. Um, thank you, Jude. Um, my name is Abdullah Wafi. I'm the ambassador of Niger to the United States. I have two questions. The first is, we heard about the situation in Mali. I thought that it was a summit on the Sahel region. The second uh, uh, observation I want to make is that, you know, uh, when Heike uh, talks about political solution, in my country, Niger, we don't have any uh, armed groups, we don't have any uh, militia, we don't have any uh, Boko Haram in the eastern part of the country, is the foreign group. Mujawu Akmi, as the honorable uh, congressman said, 10,000 foreign fighters in our region. Mm -hmm. What kind of political solution can we have with them? Coming from Syria, coming from Iraq, coming from uh, ISIS? No, I think we should think about having a holistic approach, holistic approach, and a comprehensive approach to deal with this threat. We do recognize you know, uh, when it comes to human rights, uh, good governance, women empowerment, and some challenges like, you know, the fast-growing population. But that having said, I think, I mean, the security approach, the security situation is, you know, we have to remove these security threats. We cannot negotiate with foreign armed groups my country, Niger, we've been attacked by some militias, some armed groups, because Kidal, Meneka are, you know, the stronghold of these armed groups, including those who are part of the peace process. So we have to fix all these issues. And I would like to take the opportunity to thank all of you for the Alliance of Sahel, for uh, your support, including, I mean, for those who have troops in the, on the ground, uh, the American, uh, uh, for providing us trainings and equipment and uh, Barkhane and all the others, Germany. But ultimately, we need, the G5 Sahel need to be supported when it comes to the military operations. We want to do the job ourselves. We want to do the job. We want the support of the international community to do the job. We want less foreign military presence in our countries. We want, you know, experts to train our troops, to support our troops, but not to do the job. So 
my first question is when it comes to the support provided to the G5 Sahel, how can you explain for MINUSMA one billion US dollars a year, every year, and all the supported the support provided by your military presence, you know, Germany, Netherlands, and all of uh, the, including our countries as uh, military uh, uh, troop contributing countries. But for the G5 Sahel, we have less than 100 million uh, US dollars. 700 millions for Barkhane. And then when it comes to, the, to assess the situation, we talk about the failure of the G5 Sahel. Let's talk about a collective failure because the situation is deteriorating despite all the ongoing efforts, including from the international community. So maybe we start thinking about a shift to be more strategic, you know, to have a comprehensive approach of the phenomenon. Thank you very much. Ambassador, thank you uh, for uh, great questions and comments, and thank you for your presence today. I'll just take the first one since uh, CSAS put on the Sahel uh, Summit. Um, we are, I think, throughout the presentations, we've been trying to address the whole region, but I think uh, we can't uh, avoid the obvious that lots of the problems are emanating from Mali, and I think that's why Mali gets a disproportionate amount of, of the attention here. But the harder questions, I'm going to leave to the panelists. <laughs> Um, I would like to react to uh, the, the ambassador's in intervention. I've been in, to your country, to Niamey, several times, and I think that you are doing uh, an excellent job in uh, uh, both uh, uh, fighting terrorism and uh, helping your population to, uh, to develop and to uh, create jobs, which is in the end, uh, I think one of the center parts of the of this fight against terrorism. If there's there are no opportunities for for uh, young people, uh, well, they they will they will tempt it. They will be tempted to to join the terrorist groups. So uh, it's uh, I think we have to work in both sides, both the security and the development aid. Uh, concerning the, the, the G5 Sahel, um, I, I, I recall that in 2018 there was a, a round table in Brussels where the international community committed nearly 500 million euros for the joint military for G5 Sahel, joint military force. It's true that the, the money is um, dripping slowly and uh, it's coming to the joint military force through uh, equipment, new equipment, which is being provided to the different, uh, different countries. So, I mean, uh, something is being done. Uh, you are not being abandoned. At the same time, you, I, I know that you are uncomfortable with the, uh, with the cooperation from um, foreign nations, but the problem is that this, it, it, the situation affects the whole region. It's not only Niger, it's not Mali, it's not Mauritania. It's the whole region and with a very serious risk of spillover both to the north and both to the south. So uh, we are working side by side with you, but also in our own interest, because I tell you, Spain is in the first line uh, in the South Mediterranean, so we are really scared about the situation. Thank you. 
thank you, Ambassador, for uh, for good comments uh, and, and uh, a very pertinent question as well. Um, Norway is one of the countries that have contribute get pledged and has contributed money to the G5 Sahel, but to the civilian side. Uh, that is always our solution when it comes to uh, regional uh, forces uh, that do not have a UN mandate. Um, it is difficult for us, even if we would like to, to contribute more money for, for the military side, we don't have budgets put up that way. So that's a very technical uh, answer to the question. But, uh, uh, but I think this is a discussion that needs to be uh, brought up, uh, not only for the G5 Sahel, but also other regional African forces, because you point the finger at a very important thing. When African countries actually try to uh, find solutions uh, with their own means, uh, the, the international community is not always there to, to, to back it financially. So, thank you. Um, I think there are two approaches. Um, the, the first one is to support G5 uh, Force Conjointe, because they are the troops from your countries and uh, to give them material, to give them training, like uh, Germany supports um, the, the school of, um, the peace school in, in, in Bamako, where these forces are trained. Um, and there is the other side that national security forces uh, should be supported too, because uh, in G, G5 uh, Force Conjointe, uh, we do support uh, forces along the borders that just to to stop terrorists coming over, the spillover effects um, which we have in the region. Uh, national security forces, police, um, army, uh, gendarmerie, um, they need support too because as you said, um, as my colleague Robert said, if you um, finance those to a certain limit, um, then this money is missing for development work, for instance. Um, I think the, those are answers, uh, or those are questions you, you, you asked uh, in the bilateral uh, cooperation, and uh, we use SAIL Alliance and maybe the new partnership as well um, to give you more uh, more support and um, more training for, for the national security force, for the national side. Because when I was in the region in, I think it was in 2007, um, it was by cooperation of the countries Mali, uh, Niger and Chad that ACME was beaten in the, in the region, one of the, the subgroups. And uh, it was by your efforts and not by somebody else. Um, but I think that the problem today we have is, is different. It is not just one group, there are 10, there are 100, there are subgroups uh, in different regions, they are joining uh, farmers in, in the south, in the north of Benin. Um, so it is uh, the coordination and the cooperation between you and us uh, which can have a, a peaceful solution. Thank you.
Maybe just we, we appreciate your, your, your remarks and, uh, and really the efforts of the, uh, of the government of, uh, of Niger. Much was already said. It's important, of course, that the international community really helps the G5 to, uh, to be as operational and as uh, effective as, uh, as possible. Uh, much was said. I would like to just to like to uh, to mention that there are also different EU training missions in uh, in the area that also play a role trying to uh, build up the capacity of the military uh, in the region. Thanks. Sure, Mr. Ambassador. Um, I I think what we would say is uh, we uh, we commend uh, we can only really commend the government of Niger's. Uh, commitment to security of its population. Um, you're facing challenges on two fronts uh, from Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa and the Lake Chad region near Difa, as well as um, direct threats from, uh, from uh, the tri-border region and Tilbury. And yes, we do not forget uh, certain levels of instability in Libya to your north. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for the United States, our perspective is we have worked uh, generally bilaterally. We have tried to provide the security assistance to each of the G5 Sahel members to ensure that each of them then determines what its needs are working with us and then is prepared to take those, um, that additional capacity and put it towards the, towards the joint force. And we hope we can continue to do that going forward. Thanks, Whitney. We, uh, we probably uh, privilege this part of the room more often. So do we have a question on this side? Yes, please go ahead. Hi, Marilyn Shapley with Catholic Relief Services and really appreciate the comments and the dialogue today. I was hoping to hear more about Benin and Togo and this threat uh, expanding to the coastal West African states. Early warning systems are oftentimes um, in effect, but it's hard to heed the warning when we already have so many crises. So are there things that the coastal states and civil society in those states should be thinking about now and doing now? And um, are your countries supporting that bilaterally or multilaterally? Thank you. I think just to be uh, mindful of time, maybe I'll take just two or three more questions. So I want to take one from this side of the room. Yes, sir. And then we'll do one more from the middle. And then I think then we can wrap up all the questions. Sir. Uh, my name is Mathieu Berry. Uh, I worked uh, in Burkina Faso uh, with USAID as a peace and governance specialist managing CV projects. And now I am back uh, here in the U.S. for a doctoral program at uh, George Mason University. Um, there has been much talk about coordination of donors and uh, co collaboration with uh, local partners. Uh, this is something that we have been talking much about uh, whenever we meet as partners and, and uh, representative of uh, donors uh, back in the field. Uh, and for instance, in Burkina Faso, there has been uh, a framework that has been established called sectorial dialogue uh, frameworks uh, through which donors come together they share experiences, they share updates about their activities uh, in different regions of the country, and they meet with uh, uh, local government ministries to see what to do uh, uh, after that, next steps. 
but the key problem has been putting together resources. Uh, violent extremism has important structural drivers that cannot be dealt with in, uh, in the framework of one to five years projects. And uh, in one and five years, you cannot resolve the problem of unemployment and poverty in the country. You need more time. And with one, two million dollars for each project, you don't go far. So how do you put resources together by taking into account uh, the specific uh, uh, foreign policy goals of each donor country and also the different fiscal budgets? Uh, Thank you so much. And then we'll do one more question up here in the front. Real quick, and I'll give to you. Two seconds. I want to hear from the government side. I heard it from the NGO and the academic side. The perennial question, stability and peace first to get investment economic development or vice versa? I still am not hearing from this side either. What do we need to do to really incentivize investors to come in? It's a reward-return ratio. Help me with the ratio. Thank you. All right, and then we'll, we're doing a fourth question because Mima cheated. Thank you for the call for equity. Um, my name is Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services USA. I wanted to have you speak a little bit about support for education. Uh, that's implicit in what was said here, but I want it to be explicit. All of your countries have uh, development agencies. Some uh, are more vibrant than others. We need to find ways to enable people to develop skills for the 21st century, and that involves familiarity with IT, it involves new kinds of skills in manufacturing such that that world is now going. It involves education in the humanities, which are useful to understand the culture and traditions. What are your countries doing? We have exchange programs. Once upon a time, I worked for the Fulbright program, so I know that that work can be very useful. So talk a little bit about exchange programs, training programs, and support for higher and technical education in the countries we're talking about. The higher education institutions need help, and there are wonderfully talented people, but they need more opportunities to develop their skills and their resources. Thank you. Okay, a lot on the table. Uh, we're going to start with Antonio, but there was questions about early warning for the littoral countries, questions about how do we support uh, local initiatives to better coordinate um, Mima's question, which he snuck in there about economic engagement, and a good question about education. So uh, pick which ones that you feel for best position. The one um, concerning economic development and security. Well, I think both uh, go hand in hand. So without security, there won't be any, any sort of investment, any sort of uh, economic activity. So it's the basis. It's the basis for uh, putting um, these societies uh, back to work and uh, creating jobs for, for youth. So without that, 
uh, I don't I don't think uh, there there's any future for all these countries. Um, at the same time, I I think that um, um, you must invest. Well, you cannot invest anything uh, during all this period, in spite of instability and all that. You have to. Mm, mm, Support all these countries. Uh, so uh, to 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 finish, I think that the, um, security is the main the main urgency uh, at this moment in the in the region. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. There is a variety of questions and, and difficult to answer all of them. But let me just follow up on on the on the private sector and investment side. Um, uh, as my, my colleague from Spain has pointed to, the security situation is, of course, difficult uh, and makes it uh, risky for, for private sector investments. Uh, we have a few uh, Norwegian companies that actually look at the Sahel, uh, uh, one in, in solar systems uh, that have uh, obtained a contract in Mali. Uh, but, uh, and, and they are there and trying to develop it. But we are getting back to one thing is the security, but the other is the good governance part of it. Uh, if, if if the, the countries are not able to provide uh, a conducive business climate uh, and, and, uh, and you know, uh, um, allow the, the businesses to, to establish and know uh, that what they are investing in will stay for some time and that they will have conditions that they can uh, relate to, uh, it is very difficult. So, so uh, I think the, the businesses that are actually investing in, in countries where the situation is as is like it is uh, in Mali. Um, they, they, they take a lot of risks, uh, and I think we should actually uh, congratulate them for that. Um, on education, uh, I think for for the Norwegian uh, development programs in, in Mali and Niger, we have a lot of focus on education, girls' education, uh, but it's mostly on the in the primary school. Uh, we also have supported some programs through NGOs that are kind of picking up the youth that has uh, left school and, and need to come back. So so there is a, a focus on that as well, and we have a have had uh, um, academic uh, cooperation between Norwegian universities and, and universities or, or research institutions in both Niger and Mali. Uh, and we are now starting to think about a new exchange program. We used to have it uh, with, with African countries previously. It has been stopped for quite some years. Uh, but we are now looking at it again. So, so that might be something positive, at least also for the, for the Sahelian countries. Thank you. Um, I would like to answer the questions about the coastal countries. Um, we have been talking about cooperation not only between the G5 countries and uh, partners from, uh, from the north, but um, as we've said, um, cooperation between the Sahel countries and ECOWAS, where they are all members. Uh, is crucial to the development to the coastal countries. If information are not shared, um, if there is no cooperation on security, on the security side, um, of course the coastal countries will be a kind of surprise, but this is not necessary. Um, I, I know that Niger is, is, is very active in ECOWAS, so there, there are good structures 
and um, I would say a good incentives uh, to, to bring the coastal countries in this process and uh, to work with them and to work with the partners as well. Um, <clears throat> how to work on um, getting more foreign investment uh, into the Sahel, it's really a tough one. It is important, I said at the beginning, uh, for our, from our perspective, skills and jobs are really key um, uh, to get a little bit of, uh, create a little bit of perspective. Now, what can, what can you do, what can we do as foreign, uh, foreign donors? We can, to some extent, stimulate um, the development of the, of the private sector uh, locally. We can, uh, we can try help um, improve the business climate. Uh, and we can we have a number of instruments to help uh, promote uh, trade and uh, investment but i must uh, i must say with all the news in the newspapers that we've discussed uh, all morning it is uh, an uphill struggle to uh, to convince uh, companies to invest in the sahel even though i have to say that uh, dutch people are very entrepreneurial and wherever you go worldwide you'll find uh, you'll find some but it is not uh, it is not easy um Education, of course, uh, is absolutely key. Um, higher education, exchanges between uh, universities, absolutely essential. We do have those, uh, those problems. But I would also like to point out, uh, of course, basic education, but also vocational training. People need to be, uh, to be equipped with the right, uh, the right uh, skills to enable them to, uh, to develop their own, uh, their own businesses and eventually grow the economy. Sure, I'll finish this up. Um, first, on the on the coastals, uh, you know, I think we are all acutely aware of the potential for um, for uh, violence to continue to spread into um, the coastal countries. It, the coastal countries themselves are are acutely aware of this uh, risk as well, and certainly through the Accra Initiative and uh, in other discussions at ECOWAS and elsewhere, certainly the. We understand through our embassies there, you know, these uh, governments and leaders are talking to each other and trying and working on information sharing. I do think, again, the extraordinary ECOWAS summit that is called for this Saturday in WAGA, to which at least the ECOWAS uh, commission president told me they have also invited uh, Mauritania and Chad in order to have both G5 and um, ECOWAS membership there. That, that really will be a focus, which is uh, information sharing and looking at how the countries and the leadership can take on uh, the, the regional threat, which, uh, which certainly the United States finds a very welcome approach and one that we would support completely. Um, on education, I think that, uh, you know, education is crucially important. I, I, certainly education for girls and women in particular, even if at the most basic level, if, if women and girls are numerate and literate, they, they have a, a measure of agency that they would not have otherwise. But you can go at, you know, every level and there is, there is opportunity and there is need. Um, I would look at the security situation. I know that when I was in Burkina in, uh, in February, President Kabori said that, um, in fact, something like 1,200 primary schools had had to be closed because of uh, security threats in the, in the Sahel region of Burkina Faso and elsewhere. And I think the situation has just become more grave since then. For him, he considered that one of the major threats to, to the state, to state presence and long-term security, but also 
it's, it's crucially important to the long-term development of the country um, is to keep those kids in, in primary education. And so it, it seemed, I mean, certainly the president stated, and I have no reason to doubt him, that one of the primary goals uh, for the government of Burkina in, in having a security response was trying to get back in a situation where they could get these schools open. And I think that's repeated in Mali. It's repeated from time to time in, in um, I won't even say Niger, because I don't want to, I don't, I would have to check to, to know specifically, but certainly in the Tilaberry region and other areas in Niger, there have been, there have been challenges to keeping schools open. Um, for the United States, obviously, yes, there's Fulbright programs. We have the Young Africa Leaders Initiative, the YALI program, which, um, which young people uh, um, nominate themselves for. They come and spend and are selected and spend um, a period of time in the United States um, interacting with each other. I mean, all of these are terrific, but frankly, they're all a drop in the bucket of a, of, of a great, great need. So there's room for all, you know, all donors as well as the governments themselves to continue to prioritize education. Um, the last piece, just because I'm an econ officer, I training and have done a lot of econ work in the region over my career. And I can't help but do a little econ officer nerd out. I, I, you know, the reality is um, trying to match a potential investors and opportunities is always a challenge. There are opportunities in the Sahel region. They have strategic minerals. There's, there are agribusiness agri opportunities. There are all sorts of things that are there. The, you know, there are a couple of things. One is from the governments themselves is creating an investment environment that is predictable and attractive to investors. That's a requirement for a state government. It's not something we can do for anyone. The second thing then is, is looking for ways to match opportunities and potential investors, and particularly in the Sahel, looking for investors that have perhaps a little higher risk tolerance in, um, and, and looking for reward. But again, some of that is, uh, are, are any of our governments and our businesses working together with the host governments, but it's something that we do every day. It's an it's a imperfect process, but it is something we work on but you know that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, well, we are at the end of our Sahel Summit. I am really quite pleased with such a large turnout uh, here at CSIS. We hope this is uh, the beginning of a conversation, not a one-off. Let me please thank both of our panel groups of panelists for session one and session two, uh, uh, Representative McCall, and truly all of you for coming and spending uh, the morning with us. Please join me in a round of applause.